Hello, everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's discussion featuring a series of presentations surrounding common threads in pain and chemical dependency. Our faculty speakers this afternoon include Dr. Doug Gourlay, Educational Consultant at Wasser Pain Center in Canada, Dr. Howard Height, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Georgetown University, and Dr. Mel Pohl, Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Nevada School of Medicine and Chief Medical Officer at the Las Vegas Recovery Center. So without further ado, I will turn it over to you. Thanks very much. Uh, just for those who have never heard of the Common Threads program, uh, with the American Society of Addiction Medicine, we started a program quite a few years ago, and it ran in parallel with one of the, uh, the other courses. And the idea behind it was to bring to, together people who had uh, dissimilar uh, but uh, interesting takes on the issues that were re relevant for the day. So we might talk about marijuana in the use of, uh, of cannabinoids in the treatment of pain. How does that impact on people in recovery? Uh, what might the medical legal implications be and so on? So Howard Height and I had been uh, keenly involved in that and Dr. Paul had been involved in uh, on various occasions as well. So today is the inaugural program. And uh, no pressure, but it's up to you to make it good. And uh, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to go through. It's going to be a bit didactic. Uh, we're going to be talking about people with known substance use disorders. We're going to be talking about people who are just like anybody else but are stepping out of bounds periodically. And then Mel having a residential treatment program uh, we hope to be able to sort of pull the rest together. And then we're going to talk about a few cases. And uh, if you happen to have areas you want to talk about other than the cases we've put forward, we're happy to go down that road as well. Uh, in the interest of consolidation, anyone who is out over the wings for weight and balance, this place will fly better if you move towards the center. But it's all up to you. If we crash and burn, it's not our fault. Um, so with uh, no further ado, my good friend Howard Height is going to uh, start us off. Thank you, Doug, and welcome to Common Threads. The first part of this program, I'm going to talk about you folks. I'm going to talk about your thought process you should go through before you write a prescription for chronic pain or it could be for any particular problem that you have. What is the personal inventory that you should take in your practice of yourself before you take a personal inventory of the patient that you want to treat? So I'm going to tell you, talk about the pain patient with or without the disease of addiction providing comfortable and competent care. These are my disclosures, except that as Steve Pasek says, I have to admit I don't floss on a regular basis. Okay, my learning objective is discuss how to treat chronic pain patients by doing your own personal inventory with or without the disease of addiction, describe the tenets of a lawful prescribing of a controlled substance, and identify, and identify how to develop a defensible strategy for the lawful termination of patient care if necessary. But this first part of this is about you, what you should do. Anything that we do in medicine is bound by the Hippocratic Oath. I will prescribe a regimen for the good of my patients according to my ability and my judgment and never do harm to anyone. And you have to follow it. That's been around for centuries and it hasn't changed 
any, in any aspect of medicine. The Hippocratic Oath is very important. But you have to know the basic fact of a, the disease of addiction. And the basic fact is, if I become a ham, can I be cured? And what's the answer? The answer is absolutely not. Everybody knows the story of the cucumber and the pickle, don't they? Okay? Once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never go back to becoming a cucumber. So you're either a happy functional pickle, a white knuckle pickle, but you're not using but miserable hell, or a slippery wet pickle that you're relapsing and relapsing. So again, we have to know that the disease of addiction is very treatable, but it's not curable. It's very treatable. Now, this is a definition of addiction that was done by a liaison committee that I helped form, oh, about 15 years ago between the American Pain Society, American Academy of Pain Medicine, and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And it was the first time that three organizations, especially of polar opposites, who, people who use um, controlled substances such as opioids, were talking to people who, who, um, who did not use them and were treating people who had problems with it. And this definition was cited in many of the literature. And it's addiction is a primary, chronic, neurobiological disease with genetic, psychosocial, and environmental factors influencing its development and manifestation. It's characterized by behavior that includes one or more of the following. Impaired control over drug use, compulsive use, continued use despite harm, and craving. The five C's. But the definition now is out of date. Because I like to gamble. I, everybody who knows me knows I go once a week to a casino and gamble. Socially, I'm not addicted, but I go socially. I'm physically dependent, but not addicted. And what's wrong with this definition now is if we look at the DSM-5, they include now gambling as, a, as, a, as an addiction. And I'm sure that the next one, they're going to include eating disorders and certain other things. And last time I walked through a casino, there was nobody snorting the Queen of Hearts or shooting the Ace of Spades. So where's the drug? There's no drug. So now, as we learn more and more about the disease of addiction, we realize that you could have, be addicted with not having a drug involved. And so the diagram that I used to have of three round circles, like the Olympic rings intersecting, and you had to have the combination of genetics, environmental, and the drug to hit the sweet spot of the disease of addiction, I think now is outmoded. I don't think it's... So I think there should be a six-day that it's a complex disease, very complex disease. And so we have to take that into consideration. Let's look at very simply the common reward pathway, the mesocortical limbic dopamine system. And this is the basic pathway that all the drugs of abuse go through. It's like we only have one way to get home. We have to take a train. We can't take an airplane. We can't walk. We can't take a bicycle. All the drugs of abuse go into the ventral tegmental area like a key into a lock, and send a signal to the nucleus accumbens to, re to release the happy neurotransmitter called dopamine. And they have projected to the prefrontal cortex from this area. And dopamine goes up, you get euphoria. Dopamine goes down, you get dysphoria. And most of the drugs of abuse are short-acting. And what do you do if you have dysphoria? You want to take another hit of your drug of choice in order to get the dopamine up. Let's look at the drug that was most commonly the highest percentage of addiction in the United States, although it's decreasing. The disease of nicotine addiction. About 17% of the population has the disease of nicotine addiction. And a pack of cigarettes has 20 cigarettes. You take an average of eight puffs per cigarette, and therefore you take 160 hits a day in order to keep your dopamine level up 
secondary to the nicotine level. And if you ask your smoking addict or your nicotine addict, which is the most needed, most valuable, most wanted cigarette of the day, which one is it? Yeah, that's right, it's the morning one, dopamine level dropping down. You're going through a withdrawal, and what do you do? And if you actually study this, is your first couple cigarettes of the day, you're going to take more than eight puffs, and your drags are going to be deeper in order to catch up for, for the sin of sleeping. So addiction is, a, I believe, a dopamine problem. We, we can have good dopamine in that, we have, in that we have something happy happen to us, or we could have bad dopamine, in fact, if we're using a drug illicitly. So it's very becoming more complex as we go on. Physical dependence is not addiction. Physical dependence is a state of adaptation that's manifested by drug class-specific withdrawal syndrome that can be produced by abrupt cessation of the drug, rapid dose reduction, decreasing level of the drug, and or administration of an antagonist that blocks the action of the particular drug. Again, physical dependence does not equal addiction. And with physical dependence, again, we want to know the following. I can't tell you how many times I, I get discouraged or I chuckle when I see in the newspaper, whether it be the New York Times or whether it be the Washington Post, the baby was born addicted. Well, that's foolish. Unless the baby, in the middle of the night in the neonatology room, slips on his or her diaper and goes to the neighborhood to cop some drugs. Baby's not addicted. The baby's physically dependent on the medicine. And we have to know the difference, because there's a big difference. Because you become physically dependent on antidepressants, corticosteroids to treat asthma, certain hypertensive medicines, beta blockers, et cetera, et cetera. So physical dependence is not just associated with opioids and withdrawal from opioids. Parkinson's drugs are associated with, with withdrawal. So we have to be aware of that. So the first pulse you take at a cardiac arrest better be your own. And before you write the first prescription, you want to take a personal inventory of your comfort level to be a primary provider of a healthcare professional of a patient with a pain and or with or without the disease of addiction. You want to do your own personal inventory of whether you feel comfortable taking care of that patient. And because you want to identify the patient's goals, you have to be competent to do that. You want to identify whether the pain patient, with or without the history of addiction, is pain relief seeking or drug seeking, or whether that patient is a chemical culprit, which is using the drug not for its intended purpose, abusing the drug, or a patient with addiction without pain, it's just drug seeking, not pain relief seeking. And the least common patient that you'll run into and hardest to diagnose is the criminal behavior, the person who's coming to your office a drug seeking to traffic or divert the medication. And you have to be comfortable to do your due diligence to determine which one is which and to be very competent in what Doug will go over it, of how you record this in a chart. Your documentation is your best defense against any medical legal problem. If you don't document it, you don't document it, it didn't exist. And I've been told to ask and say, well, doc, you know, my patient chewed the Oxycontin and I still want to prescribe to him. I can't put that in the chart. The answer is absolutely you put it in the chart. The question is what you do with that information. And if you feel it's necessary that the patient still needs opioids for their chronic pain, what are you going to change in their treatment plan, whether it be the molecule you prescribe or the frequently you see the patient or bringing somebody onto your team? That's your job. But document everything in the chart. You can never document too much. Too much. So very seldom does a patient present like this that they give away the secret that this, this patient was drug-seeking right off the bat. I knew that because the patient was very nervous when she, when she came to see me. 
It's in the eyes, the pupils. So I want to take a personal inventory before I start treating patients. I think everybody, especially if you're just beginning to do pain management, you have to know addiction medicine. And I take a variation of the tenth, of the tenth step of AA. I want a personal inventory of my knowledge and comfort to treat a patient with a pain syndrome. I want to ask myself, do I have the resources and the experience in my practice and community to treat the chronic pain patient? And last but not least, am I uncomfortable or unsure of the clinical problem, and should I refer the patient to another doctor? It's not a sin to refer a doctor. How many people refer complex cases of diabetes to another doctor, complex cases of chronic obstructive lung disease to another doctor? So again, if you need to, always enlarge your team with these fine people. There are people out there to help you. One of the things that I did, there was not a pain psychologist in my area. And I live in a very sophisticated area. I live outside Washington, D.C. We may, recently, you may not call it a very sophisticated area, but that's a different story. And so I had nobody to sort of like counsel my patients. So what I did, I went to the phone book, and I got the names of four or five masters of social work. And I took four or five, they were different parts of town, almost surrounding my practice. I took them out to dinner. I said, would you see my patients? And I'll help you evaluate them, and, I, and I'm available by a phone call anytime you need me. I'll be available for you. And it worked out beautifully. I had four or five patients four or five masters of social work that were not associated with my practice, not paid for my practice, had an independent practice, but I united and, and made together a team to treat my patients. And it worked out very, very nicely. Now the other one thing that you have to ask yourself is this paper that was published many years ago, and the references at the end, is the five Ds. It was originally with four Ds, and I added a fifth D a number of years ago. The patient who's coming to me, the inherited patient who comes into my office, they're, they, they're, they're desperate to have somebody treat them, to appropriately prescribe the controlled substance that they need. I could be dishonest and say, geez, yeah, Harry's coming here. You know, I spend 10 minutes with him. I'll charge him 150 bucks. And what difference does it make? I'll document it in a chart that I did this and I did that. You know, so I'm being dishonest. The patient is using me as a drug dealer, not for medical care. I don't think I do that. I'm not in it for the money. Am I being duped that I failed to de detect the de uh, deception, allow myself to be manipulated into prescribing invariance with accepted medical practice? No, I, my CME credits are up to date. I read, I have journals, I lecture, et cetera. And I feel that I'm comfortable prescribing. And I, don't I feel that if they fool me, they fool me. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but I don't think I'm gonna be duped. And the patient can contribute to that by falsifying and withholding information just like they can contribute to be using me as a drug dealer and not for medical care. The third D, am I dated? Did I fail to keep current with prescribing practices or knowledge about drug abuse patterns? And that's again, am I keeping up with my education? Education, education, that is the key in anything that we do. Now, and Doug and I, Doug has a lot of Dougism. I think you said education, not regulation is the key. And think about it, education, not regulation, is the key to taking care of our patients. Now the fifth D was, was added a number of years ago when we had a doctor with, in my area who had national prominence before he went to jail for quite a number of years, was defiant. I know what to do. I, nobody else knows what to do. I don't have to follow the rules. I'm different from everybody else. Yeah, you have to follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, you, you run into difficulty. 
So what you have to know, do you know federal regulations for prescribing a controlled substance? And because the D, DA is your friend if you use them as your friend. I wrote a paper a number of years ago is that I went through the federal regulations of prescribing a controlled substance, and there were little nuances that I wasn't familiar with, or I didn't know the answer, that it could go, a little gray area would be a better term in the federal regulation. So I called the head of the, of the Division of Diversion, which only about 10 minutes from my office at the time, Patricia Good. I said, Ms. Good, I said, I want, could you answer these questions? I'm going to submit them. Could you write the answer back to me on, on your official stationery? Because I'm going to try to publish them. And we published an article called Dear DEA. Now, the sad part of the whole thing is the Justice Department came down very hard on her, very hard. They said, what are you doing working with a clinician with education? They said, your job is to interpret federal regulation and enforce federal regulation. And I thought that was kind of foolish, but that's what happened. And so when we look at traditional laws and common practice, a physician is not required to treat every patient who needs medical assistance. There's no legal obligation, as distinguished from an ethical obligation, to treat any patient, even in an emergency. There is no legal or regulatory obligation to prescribe on demand or at the first visit. When do you prescribe? You prescribe when you're comfortable prescribing, when you feel that you have the information to, to prescribe and have the knowledge to follow the patient up in prescribing these valuable medicines. Because federal law says I may administer, dispense, a Schedule II medication to a person with an intractable pain in which no relief or cure is possible and none has been found after reasonable effort. And this is the federal regulation definition of a chronic pain patient. So the law, the regulations are on our side if we know the regulation and we use the regulations appropriately. And this gentleman just say no to crack. Well, if he comes into my office, what could I do with him? Could I treat his pain syndrome? Or I say, no, you've got an addiction problem. You've got to go straight to see Mel and don't stop going, I don't really care about your pain problem. But federal regulations are help me in this. Can, I, can a pain patient who presents with an active addiction be treated if indicated with opioids? Should I feel fear the regulatory agency if I treat chronic pain with opioids and the patient also has a disease of addiction? Will I be a target of the regulatory agency? Well, my practice, hold on. My practice consisted of three patient populations. Patients, to the best of my knowledge, had chronic pain only. Patients, to the best of my knowledge, had addiction only. And I would see the patient that nobody wanted to see who had both if they were willing to work a program for both. And the key is that they were willing to work a program for both problems. So federal regulation is clearly on my side. I may treat acute or chronic pain with a Schedule II medication in a recovering narcotic-addicted patient. I do not like the word narcotic. We don't, I never prescribed a narcotic in my life, but I prescribed opioids. Narco Nicard, talking about bells to take medicine. There's a mandatory urine drug screen for anyone whose phone goes off. And if it goes off twice, it's witnessed, and we draw straws. Yeah. That was a phone call. You, okay. They treat acute chronic pain with a Schedule II medicine in a recovering narcotic-addicted patient. Narcotic is the Greek word for stupor. I don't put my patient in a stupor. I want to increase their function, decrease their pain, and minimize any side effects they have with a medication. Federal does not <coughs> permit the prescribing, the dispensing, or the administration of a narcotic medication to a narcotic addicted patient for the purpose of alleviating pain. If such prescribing is appropriately, me medically appropriate with the standards set by the medical community. But again, you have to, the following. 
you must keep good records to document the physician is treating the pain syndrome and not the disease of narcotic addiction. Again, your medical legal records are your passport to prevent or defend yourself against any type of malpractice situation. And so federal regulations say I'm allowed to administer, dispense directly, but not prescribe a narcotic drug to a narcotic-dependent person for detoxification or maintenance therapy, but the physician must have a separate registration with the DEA as an opi opioid treatment program, OTB, or I must have the waiver to have the second BND number to prescribe buprenorphine without naloxone secondary to the Drug Treatment Act. So I could take, and I have to, in the morning, in the, in the um, morning session, somebody came up to me and said, well, what if I, the patient's sort of like, I, I could do both, but I'm not sure whether I could, um, you know, whether I should have somebody else, can I do both, as opposed to getting somebody else to treat the pain or somebody else to treat the addiction. You can do both, but you have to be careful is what your main code is, what you're mainly treating him or her for. And if it's for pain, then you have to write it and code it as such, and addiction is a secondary diagnosis, and then you treat it as such. If, you're going to, if you don't want to do it yourself, it's better maybe to bring somebody else into the treatment, tr treatment team, and this is what you want to do. You want to be upfront with the patient, what you can do and what you cannot do. The healthcare professional must comply with both federal and state regulation that governing prescribing a scheduled controlled substance. And this is key. When federal law regulations differ from state law regulations, the more stringent rule applies. So if there's a difference between state law and, reg and, um, and federal law, the more stricter law applies. Now, the best example I could give you that with the dispensing of medical marijuana, federally, it's still a Schedule I drug has no medical use, Schedule 1. So the government could come in tomorrow and shut down every, every dispute, you know, person who distributes marijuana in the state of California. They could shut it down tomorrow because federal law trumps state law if it's more stringent. So you have to be aware of that. A lawful prescription for controlled substance must be issued for a legitimate medical purpose by an individual acting in the usual course of their professional practice and there's a big difference between legitimate and appropriate prescription for scheduled medication. I think Doug's going to go over that. I could write a legitimate prescription for 2,000 Oxycontin. 2,000 per prescription. Take one every 15 minutes. That's a legal prescription. But will the, the, the attention of the DEA? Certainly we will, because it's not an appropriate prescription. You have to be able to defend how you're giving the medicine, and you're, you're, what you're doing, you're writing the prescription, the pharmacist is dispensing the medication. Very rarely are you going to dispense the medicine for pain in your practice because then you have to keep the records just like a pharmacy and you really don't want to go through that hassle. And that's why God invented pharmacists. So here you are, you're at the crossroads, you went through all this all, and a patient comes into your practice, should you stop or go with that particular patient? Do you think that you should take care of them or not? And this is decision making before you write the first prescription for that particular patient. Okay, the patient can come into my practice, he moves to my practice area, referred from another doctor or patient or friend, and his or her prescribing physician may have died, lost her medical license or registration for a cause, just decided not to prescribe anymore, that I just don't want to do this anymore, I'm scared, I, there's too much publicity against this, and I don't want to be bothered with it, or fires the abandoned patient for cause. So there's many ways that this patient could come in inherited into your practice and you have to be aware of this. Now what I did, and I strongly suggest this, 
is that if the patient calls your office, with, who is, I had very little virgins call my office. Everybody was on opioids. And, and they're not my responsibility until they come into the practice. If possible, I wanted to get their medical records before scheduling an appointment. Because my receptionist would say, well, Dr. Height would love to see you, but he doesn't want to waste your time or money if he doesn't feel that you need opioids. You have to come with an open mind. Or if you feel that you're on irrational pharmacotherapy, he's not going to continue it. So I wanted a, sort of like an insight before I saw the patient of their previous medical record. Didn't matter whether they had kicked out for addiction, as long as I knew it. And so I want to inform the effect in prospective patient, I may or may not prescribe the medication the patient is presently on. If they present with rational pharmacotherapy, I'll just continue it. If it, they can present with rational pharmacotherapy, with a little bit of tweaks, that I can make it a little bit better. Or they can present with what I call irrational pharmacotherapy that is not in their best interest, I make it clear, hopefully before their appointment, but certainly at their appointment, I'm willing to take care of you, I'm willing to treat you, I'm willing to get a treatment plan and use good pharmacy and, and treat you in a biopsychosocial model, but I'm not going to prescribe the medicine that you're currently on or the types of medicine that you're on. And I explain why I don't think it is in their best interest. And the patient has their, has their um, could vote with their feet whether they want to stay with me. And then I want to, regardless of the boundaries, I limits should be tightened until you get to know the patient. So you can see the patient more frequently until you get to know the patient. And I never prescribe on demand. I never prescribe. In other words, I never, the law says I do not have to prescribe on demand. If a patient threatens me, that immediately severs the doctor-patient relationship. Immediately severs it. And so our treatment of the patient is based on mutual trust and honesty, agreed upon boundary setting before writing the first prescription, signing a treatment agreement, and notice I said agreement, not contract. And in your treatment agreement, words do matter. And we discussed this this morning. Words do matter. Never in your treatment unit, in your treatment uh, uh, agreement, be concrete that I will not prescribe if you do this. I will not do that if you do this. Because that can get you into trouble. Because many times it can be very innocent why the patient did something. And then if you continue prescribing after you've documented that office in your medical record, and the patient comes under harm, secondary to you prescribing, the, the lawyer will, 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 will win in court. So we always use what I call weasel words. I may, I may, I may. Because then I'm not backed into the corner. Anybody who does medical legal work knows that you never back yourself into the corner. Always give yourself an out if something happens that, so it gives you more and more options. And so they sign a treatment agreement. They agree on urine drug testing at an interval that I think is appropriate. And I think pill counts are very important. I use pill counts very, very um, with all my patients. And what I did, let's say they're on three opioids a day, and I'm going to see them every 30 days. So I write a prescription for 90 opioids plus three extra days, three extra days. Those extra days are not to be used unless they call me and specifically get my permission to use those extra pills. But there could be something that in my health, their health, weather, et cetera, that will delay their prescription, or, or they're coming to the office, and I want them to have that three days of safety. And initially, when I wrote these prescriptions, and, and then when the patient comes back, they have to bring their pills back in the original bottle. When I write the new prescription, I write nine left on the, on, on the last prescription, make a copy of it, and put it in, the, in, the, in my records, and I have, a, I have a documentation of every pill that I prescribe in my practice. Let me tell you an incident where this came very helpful to me. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was going to the movies with my wife. And I was just passing the, um, 
my office and I got a call on my phone. It was the Fairfax County Police. They had my patient and they were going to arrest my patient as a drug dealer. And they, took, they found a bottle of Oxycontin by her bedside and they said that she was a dealer. They were raiding her house. I said, geez, I didn't, who? Uh-oh, uh-oh, oh Okay, one, two, I'm going to pick a number. I have, I have an excuse. Okay, and so I saw the patient, you know, I said to the, to the officer, I said, uh, could you give me 10, 15 minutes, I'm going to drop by my office and, and call me back, and I, have, and I want to know some information. And I got to the information, I got to my office, and the officer called back and I said, she, do you have her pill bottle? I said, yes. The officer said, yes. I said, she has 68 pills in the bottle. He counseled. He said, how did you know that? Because she takes the medicine as prescribed from appointment to appointment plus three days extra. And she does, I don't have any evidence that she's misusing the medicine. And I said, the officer, I'll give you one other piece of information. She's also pregnant. And she goes into withdrawal and has a spontaneous abortion. I would have to um, testify against you in court. He gave her her medicine back. But I still wondered why, she, why the police raided her house. And so she came in to the, you know, to the next appointment with her husband. And I certainly asked that question. That's a reasonable question to ask when you get called by the police. And she said they picked the wrong house. They meant to go next door. I swear to God, this is a true story. So there, my pill counts were very, very helpful to me. And I can document every pill that I prescribe in my practice by doing appointment, appointment, plus three days extra. Now, the other person that I do on my prescription, I write chronic pain patient on my prescription because I want the pharmacist to be my friend. Because the pharmacists are taught if there's sort of like odd numbers, something must go on, must be going on. And I want to inform the, the pharmacy what I'm doing also. So when they see numbers of 68 pills, 72 pills, 90 pills, 80 pills, that they realize what I'm doing and they become part of my team. I emphasize part of my team. So then I, all of my last thing, I want my my patient to, my prescribing their medicine is contingent on, and what is it contingent on? Them showing up for practice, going up, showing up for their appointment, going to referrals if I think that is necessary. In other words, we're working together of what is in their best interest. Okay. When a decision is made to discontinue a certain class of medication, it's important to remember this is not misinterpreted as discontinuation of treatment. You've heard Doug said a million times, abandon the molecule, not the patient. Unfortunately, for some patients, discontinuation of a certain drug will result in them abandoning you. That's their choice. We live in a great country. They can vote and say, you're not giving me what I need or, or what I want is a better term, and therefore I'm going to go somewhere else. I say, God bless you. But usually when the doctor calls my office and tries to get the records, I will give him the records, and he or she will ask, why did, I, um, why did, this, why did the patient abandon me? Because the people knew me in the community. And I tell them. Again, communication is, is very clear. Very rarely have I fired a patient in my practice. I've been in practice maybe well over maybe 25 years. I can say maybe two or three times that I fired a patient. But if that happens, I send a letter by certified mail, return receipt requested, a general reason for terminating the relationship, an effective date of termination, and a referral source so that patient may have adequate assistance in locating another physician. Now, another physician could be 50 miles away that's the patient's problem. It's not my problem. I can't manufacture patient people to, you know, doctors, healthcare professionals to treat chronic pain, especially patients who have aberrant behavior. And again, most importantly, document all your thoughts as part of the medical record. 
And I can't emphasize enough is teamwork with your dispensing pharmacist. The pharmacist is a, is a critical member of the treatment team and the patient of the circle of care. I want an open dialogue between the prescriber and dispensing with pharmacists will help me minimize risk while enhancing patient care. I do not leave the pharmacists on hold. I see them and answer their phone calls within 30 seconds because they're very important as far as my treatment plan, and they give me a lot of information about my patient. And the pharmacist has a unique role, which they could be part of the team to help me take care of my patient with chronic pain. So my conclusion is patient management of a pain patient with or without disease and addiction. Always assess your comfort level, knowledge, and resources to treat your patient. Have your treatment patient-centered, what is in the patient's best outcome, and always to improve their life is the hallmark of treating pain is increased function, decrease pain, and, and also then minimize any side effects that you might have with prescribing your medication. So if this gentleman could beat anorexia, we could do a better job of treating pain. There's no question about it. And the last but not least, we've got to shoot high, whoops, we've got to shoot higher and higher in our goals in our patients. Remember, they're good patients with difficult disease. They're not difficult patients with, with that disease. They're good people who are want, the overwhelming majority want help with their particular problem, and we could help them using rational pharmacotherapy, appropriate value, evaluation, and appropriate prescribing consistent with federal regulations. And here's some references that are on that you'll get, a whole bunch of references. And thank you for listening to me. We're, uh, we're going to take a couple of questions and then move on. And there'll be lots of time, I think, to, uh, to talk about questions and answers uh, toward the end of the session. Go ahead. Uh, just um, we're recording this, so there, there we go. The microphone is coming to you. My question is directed towards the notification of termination of a patient. You specified in your lecture about using a certified mail with return receipt. The problem I've had in my practice is that a lot of patients who are informed either verbally prior to this letter being sent, they will not accept that letter. So I've spoken with my board in Arizona and they said just send by regular mail. If they don't uh, accept the certified letter it, and, they, and it's returned to you non-deliverable, it's considered that they've been notified and they still have the, that 30-day rule still applies. Well, I think that you have to do the best you can under the circumstances. And you, made, you did your due diligence to send them a certified mail. The fact that they didn't accept it, it's on them. You did your due diligence by sending it regular mail. And that's all could be expected you could do. And you then document, document that in the chart. I don't think you have any problem with medically legally doing that because yeah. the patient is trying to gain you. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't go with uh, registered and then try to do it regular. You're, you're then getting caught up in a game. One thing you should do is check with your state medical board to find out what, if any, regulations they have. 30 days is typical. Uh, during that 30 days, you're usually responsible for emergent and ongoing care. Uh, but that doesn't mean you give them a big bottle of pills and say, be careful. <laughs> In fact, quite the contrary. Uh, what you have to do is tighten the boundaries during that latter period of time and re recognize that if 
on day 28, the patient says, you know, doctor, it's been a lot harder for me to find another doctor uh, than I realized. Uh, could you just give me one more week? As soon as you write that prescription for one more week, they're you're your back patient. on the hook. They're your uh, patient. So, so try to remember that there is a game that we're not really qualified to play. Uh, but if you send a registered letter after telling the patient that you're no longer able to meet their needs safely or however you frame it, and always frame it and document it in the context of safety. If you find yourself uh, angry and writing something that could be interpreted as being um, off point, uh, then stop writing it and, and uh, take a deep breath and, and eventually come back to it. Because the thing that's going to determine whether you've abandoned them or they've abandoned you is how a third party reviews the process that you undertook. Yeah, I, I would also just point out that when you set a boundary, which you're going to talk about in the next uh, yeah. don't expect the patient to say, thanks, I've been waiting for you to tell me this. You know, they are going to get pissed. They are going to get belligerent. They are going to get threatening. And setting the boundary is really about just doing what you know, documenting it, and sticking to your guns. And, and one thing don't. to, you know, if we had, or if I had to do universal precautions again, although 10 is a great number, uh, Howard points out it's the number of commandments that, uh, that we're all uh, supposed to follow. The fact is there would be 11th. And the 11th commandment in, uh, uh, in our program would be to say that if you have contentious news to communicate to a patient, such as boundaries, bring a third party into the room. And that third party shouldn't be uh, their mother, their father, their sister, their brother. Uh, if they want to bring a third party in like uh, a significant friend, then say, fine, that's good. But I need my nurse manager, I need my administrative assistant to be in because I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying and I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. And in order to do that safely, we have to have the independence to be able to do this credibly. Doing that will take all the risk of impropriety out of uh, the interaction and beware the patient, especially the seductive patient, be it male or female, who says, I just want to talk to you, doc, because you're the only one who understands me. <laughs> Check you've got your watch or your wallet <laughs> and then get out of Dodge. Also, I, we discussed this in the morning session, is if you're going to give them 30 days, that doesn't mean that you give them a bottle or a prescription for 30 days' worth of medication. That could get you in a lot of problems. What you want is the patient to come back to your office maybe once every week, or you write the do not fill prescription. Is everybody familiar with how to do the do not fill prescription? Should I go over that briefly? Yeah, just. Yeah. Okay. Do not fill, is, you have to check whether do your state. Do not fill until. Do not fill until. You have to check your state uh, medical board whether it's, whether it's allowable. It's allowable in multiple states. Let's say I want to see the patient in 28 days, and I only want to give them seven days' worth of medication. I write four prescriptions, all the same, all dated in the right upper-hand corner, the same. On the second prescription, I write, do not fill until seven days after the date in the right upper-hand corner. The third prescription, I write, do not fill until 14 days after the date in the right upper-hand. And then the third prescription, I write, do not fill until three weeks after, and I put the date specifically in the right-hand corner. As a legal prescription, the pharmacist can't fill it until that particular day, and you're reducing what Doug says your pill load for that particular patient. That's, and if the patient lives far away from you or says it's a financial hardship, the, the most common uh, problem I have with that from the patient is that I can't pay all those co-payments. 
And sometimes I work it out with the pharmacist that they'll just give them the medicine without, you know, charging the copayment. But that's called their problem, not my problem. They're leaving me, I'm not leaving them. I, I would call the pharmacy and explain what I, was, what I was doing, but I would require the patient to work it out with the pharmacy. And I would be doing my best to advocate on, the behalf, on behalf of the patient. Uh, the, you know, the pharmacist is a health professional. They want to do the best thing. And in many cases, uh, in situations like we're describing here, they're desperately looking for change. They want something to indicate that it isn't going to be the train wreck it was last week. This is also very effective to use if you have a patient who is on a medication that they historically have had trouble controlling. Um, you can use do not fill until as a regular uh, mode of delivery. One of the things that we, we think about typically in, in writing prescriptions is if I'm going to see my patient in 30 days, I write a prescription that has enough tablets to last 30 days. The problem is as the number of pills per day increases, the number of pills we're writing for increases. And certainly in some jurisdictions, the DEA is actually using the number of pills per prescription as a flag to determine whether they're going to investigate you. So one of the things you can do as a motivator to change is to say, well, I can only give you two weeks worth of medications now. And, and when the patient says, I don't want to come and see you for a month, well, then we're going to have to work on a way of lowering your daily dose in order to allow us to do that. These are little tricks that are very oblique because it's not really you, it's simply you're using your best practice and the information you got at this previous week that you had at pain week here in order to enhance safety and care for your patient. And the other aspect of what Doug just said and then we'll go to Mel, the other thing is it's very easy to bring back an empty bottle and people you know, prescribe from appointment to appointment, the patient brings back an empty bottle. It's harder to bring back a bill, a bottle that has nine pills in it. Easy to count, takes two seconds, but think about it. You don't know whether that pill bottle got emptied with the last dose last night or three weeks ago. You don't know that. Not that you could tell whether they, whether they took the medicine as, as prescribed anyway, but it's again, it's another safety thing that you're doing and you're being proactive with your patient proactive as far as recognizing that these medicines are valuable medicines on the street, they can be diverted. You're doing what we call your due diligence and you're doing your best you can to prescribe lawfully, legally, and humanely to your patient to give them the best possible life given the reality of their clinical situation. And so what we hopefully do is just keep you sending these little nuggets of what to do and hopefully these will facilitate maybe changes when you go back to your practice on Monday. Be, beware, how many of you are familiar with the Rent to Own program? Yep, Rent Pills. Pills. The Rent to Own program in brief summary is to say I can go to my friend Mel over here and, and rent a bottle of, of prescription opioids such as Percocet, uh, dilated, whatever it is, and I will then supplement my pill count when I've just had a little bit of uh, overuse during that week. The interesting thing is, if you look at the pills, they're often not the same pills that a pharmacist would, would dispense. And not surprisingly uh, to all of us here, I'm sure, pharmacies don't dispense multiple brands of pills to make up the bottle. And it'd be it, different lot numbers too. It's, it's very, well you can't count the lot number in a bottle unless they give you the whole bottle. But, but the important point here is that when you are looking at something that's abnormal, I pick up the bottle and I, I start writing down the information on the bottle and it's surprising how much more information starts to flow 
about what else is going on in that person's life. I remember a patient who had a big bottle of Percocet. It was tired, it was worn, the, the cap kind of bulged. He was a new patient for me, and I, I took my clinical fellow out in the, into the waiting area, and I said, what do you think he's trying to tell us? What do you think if I came to you as a patient with a, a, a big bottle of pills that was just full, and really looked tired and old and was dated maybe from six months or over a year. Well, I mean, the message is, Doc, I only use these once in a blue moon. And as I came back in, I started writing down the telephone number of the pharmacy and the name of the pharmacy, and it was almost like the clouds in the sky opened up and the answers flowed down. He said, okay, I'm using a lot more than I admitted I was using. <laughs> But he was trying, and, and when we looked in the bottle, there were Tylox, there was Percocet, name brand, there was everything. And so, you know, use your common sense. You don't have to challenge people. In and remember, order to get you're, more information. You're, you're, you're a health care provider, you're not a police person. Mm -hmm. You're a health care provider, and you're doing your best you can given the reality of the situation that we live in. And there'll be some patients that game you, and it just happens. So I apologize if you if you covered this. The uh, elevators were being very finicky, and I missed the first couple of minutes. But if you're if you're managing the pain of a person who's addicted to meth or polypharmacy or you name it, um, and they're not in a treatment program, and you're getting your dirty UAs, you know how do you manage? to maintain your, your boundaries. Oh, okay. And then, and then this is Mel's area, but I'll go first with it. And I think all three of us have an answer from it. Unless the patient is willing to work a program for both diagnoses, I will not prescribe to that patient. They have to be willing, and that has to be verified that they're working a program for their recovery from whatever drug they're abusing, whether it be this drug or that drug, for me to continue prescribing to them. That's part of my treatment agreement. That's part I will not continue prescribing it makes no sense. As Doug said, you can't treat a pain problem in an act of addiction. And so they have to be willing to work a program for both. No? Well, I, I think that's a best world scenario. And if you're in a rural area and you don't have resources, or if you're in a small city and, and, and have limitations, it, you can find that very challenging. I mean, what comes to mind is, what if somebody has marijuana uh, in their urine? You know, it is a federally illegal drug. You're going to talk about that later, right? I am. Um, yeah. So we don't want to get that talks. Uh, we don't want to get I'm derailed. going home. Nothing here to do anymore. <laughs> but, but it really is a, a challenge if, if you have a non-compliant person who's not doing what's best for them. You have a non-compliant diabetic who won't follow a diet. Or, you know, do you fire them from your practice? Do you withhold their insulin? Probably or not. do you really work, as Doug's going to talk about, I think move towards a, a proper solution, which is abstinence from dangerous drugs in the presence of other dangerous drugs that you're prescribing. And I think it's a negotiation. I think it's a real uh, interaction between a, a, a physician a prescriber or a nurse practitioner, PA, who is responsible for that prescription and the relationship with the patient. And I would discourage immediate termination, uh, even though you could be justified in doing it, because then you don't have any chance to impact the patient. Thing in, in, in fact, one other thing, if you were earlier on today, we talked uh, from a legal, um, 
clinical and, and Johns Hopkins, poor man, moderator's perspective of trying to control three uh, obsessive compulsive people. Uh, and he did a very good job. But one of the things we've got to remember is there are many right answers to dealing with yeah. abnormal yeah. Uh, behavior. There is only one absolutely wrong answer. And that wrong answer is to just ignore it and hope it goes yeah. away. And, and so, as Mel is saying, in a situation like that, you can tighten the boundaries. Mm -hmm. You can change the medication from the one that they've proven time and time again that they're not able to control. You can tighten the village, uh, vigilance around it. But the way I, and Howard and I have written about this, try to turn it into the golden moment. And the golden moment is when the patient sees things the way they are, not the way they wish they were. You know, um, in the Prochaska and DiClemente concept of readiness to change, um, problem, I don't have a problem, to ultimately I need treatment. You need to assess where they are and then pitch a reasonable suggestion. I don't tell a person who doesn't know they have a problem that they need to go to residential treatment with Mel Pohl. But over the course of a few weeks, I might get them to think, well, you know, Doc, I don't always end up in jail when I drink. But you might have a point there. I've never been in jail where I wasn't tanked. I mean, I thought that was just a coincidence. So ju just two resources. Prochaska and DiClemente wrote stages of change, right. starting with pre-contemplation, contemplation. So it's really about the process. No, hell no, to, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe. To, well, let's, how do I do this? And motivational interviewing. That's a skill set where you work with the ambivalence of a, of a patient and you know, sort of enhance the, the healthier side of that ambivalence. The, the funny thing about Prochaska and DiClemente, long before they ever codified it in their transactional analysis, good doctors, good clinicians were always looking at, patient, at where patients were, where they needed to be, and how you could best help them get there. Yeah. So, you know, like so many things, universal precautions, when we wrote it, we admitted shamelessly to anyone who would ask, it's everything you were asked to do in medical school, nursing school, pharmacy, whatever. It, it was unique only in that we dared to suggest you should do it with everybody. The other thing with the readiness to change, the stages are pre-contemplative. I am oblivious to the idea that I have a problem. Contemplative, gee, I might have a problem. Preparation, maybe I should do something about it. And then I do action. I make an appointment to see Mel. And then maintenance, do I continue doing it? And successful, I, I, let me give you an example. I had a patient who had an alcohol problem for years, and he was still actively using when he came to see me. And he saw good people. And I worked with him, and he came, and he got into a solid recovery. And I said, George, I said, what did I do different? I know the people that you saw. They were good people. They know, they're much smarter than I did, than I ever am. What did I do differently? And the patient taught me something. He just looked at me and said, Howard, I was ready to change. Yeah. So the other people moved that gentleman along to different stages, and then they, he, he stopped there, and it took some other doctors to pick up the mantle and take it to the finish line. And I always remember he said, Doctor, I was ready to change. You just happened to meet me at the right time. I mean, that, that's the classic inpatient when the person says, you know, if only somebody had told me, stop using, and my life would get better. Thank God I came to your clinic. And yet everyone in that clinic knew that they were told time and time and time again 
that, that the patient's life would be, simil would be simpler if they didn't have to have the complexity of a drug or alcohol. Are you saying it wasn't what I said? No, of course it was, Mel. And that's the other thing, fantasy and illusion in treatment. <laughs> no. You know, the hard thing about this is, and, and having worked in a tertiary center pain program for quite a few years, you'll hear very well-intentioned and passionate uh, pain specialists say, but I don't think they're faking their bowstring test, or I don't think the Sperling's maneuver to, to demonstrate cervical radiculopathy is faked. And my position on that is I'm not for a moment suggesting any of that. I'm just asking you to look at the immutables. And the immutables are the things that regardless of why they're occurring, are occurring and they're unacceptable. My wife will often bring a, an absolute forest uh, with a patient in her description. And my question is always, she's a family doctor, will always be, what are the immutables? What are the things that regardless of why you can't reconcile? They always arrive at 4.45 before the five o'clock curtain call on Fridays. They always call on call for renewals of prescriptions. Elvis or aliens are involved in why their urine drug screen is positive for <laughs> cocaine. Now, fair enough. I don't know anybody in this audience who can confirm that aliens don't use topical cocaine when they probe you rectally. But the fact that you can't prove it doesn't make it sensible to accept it. Yeah. There's two questions that I ask to every new patient who comes into my office with a disease of addiction. First of all, I say, do you think it's a disease or moral failing? If they say a moral failing, I say I respectfully disagree with you. And on their educational level, I explain that we're dealing with a disease. The other question I ask you, are you having a good time? I never met somebody who came into my office who was having a good time. The highs get lower, the lows get lower, and you can get, like, you can only get so much blood out of a rock, you can only get so much dopamine out of a neuron. And, and, and I tell the patient, you know, you have three choices here, most likely. You could, you could continue using, most likely you'll have a premature death, or you go to jail, or you go to recovery. Only one out of three is, is good. Let's try the one out of three. And present them that it is a problem, it's hard, and you gotta work at it. Okay, so the universal precautions in the age of prescription drug abuse, is it enough? One of the talks I've given over the years has been uh, multi-dimensional, uh, unidimensional solutions for multi-dimensional problems, is it ever enough? And obviously what we're talking about here are complex situations. And, and unfortunately, they're complex situations, meaning they take a lot of time. And most of you, I would have to say, don't have the time to invest that, for example, Mel's team might have the opportunity to, or myself, or, or Howard. But that doesn't mean that when your radar senses something isn't right. You know the old story, I don't know it's wrong, but it's, it's not as advertised. You know that feeling, and when that feeling occurs, Tighten the boundaries and limits. And by tightening the boundaries and limits, you perturb the system. And when you perturb the system, you'll get more information out of it. So when we did universal precautions in, in 2005, we proposed it not as uh, an end of the discussion, but rather the beginning of a discussion. A discussion that dared to say, if you've got a pulse, you've got a risk. And the challenge for us all is to determine how best to manage that risk. So in terms of learning objectives, <coughs> 
describe the prescription drug problem as it relates to illicit drug uh, street use. I think it's disingenuous to imagine that medical practitioners have been pumping opioids into the system for the past 25 years, and now we're aware of the problem. We yanked the rug out from underneath an awful lot of people, some of whom are well and truly benefiting from the opioid class of drugs, some uh, who are basically struggling on a day-to-day -day basis and then wonder why so many people are dying. That's, that's just not credible in my mind. We need to look at the role of the medical community and what role we played. Many of us uh, over the years have heard others say prescription drugs aren't the problem, it's illicit drugs. There are drugs coming from different locations. Good people don't use uh, medications inappropriately. But the reality is if, even if we're no longer in the supply part of the problem, we're in the demand part of the solution. And all of you sitting here have the opportunity to raise that, that what-if question. You know, all of you have probably been trained to say, what's your magic wand? If I had a magic wand and I could wave it, how would your life be different? And so for many people who got involved with the opioid class of drugs, simply giving them insight that life can be better with a little bit of change can be very, very powerful for them. We need to look at the importance of responsible medical support in addressing this issue. If you're careening out of control heading towards a brick wall and you take your hands off the wheel and say, technically I wasn't driving when I hit, that's not going to cut it. Your <laughs> prescription may not be what killed them, but the carfenta-tainted OxyContin counterfeit that they bought on the street did kill them, and dead is dead. And I think we have to keep that in mind. And then we have to look at the challenges in addressing problematic behavior in the legitimate pain patient. And as Howard said earlier, legitimate and appropriate are not the same things. There are lots of people who have legitimate reasons for being on medications that can be used problematically, and yet it's not appropriate to provide them those medications. The classic example is a person who always gets into trouble with short-acting breakthrough medications. At some point, you have to kind of agree that's not a course of action you can afford to take anymore. Now, that may lead to reconsolidating the pharmacotherapy completely and maybe even discontinuing opioids completely and finding a, an alternative pathway. You may be able to help the person do that. You may be able to refer them on somewhere that can do that. But you need to respect the fact that problematic behavior, regardless of the motive behind it, you know, how many of you have got patients who say, but doc, I don't use it to get high. I use it to control my pain. Of course, most pain patients don't look on this as I crave the drug, I crave relief. Uh, it, it's not making me high. In fact, many will say it's just taking the edge off. That's not a win. Running out on Friday and having your pain go to 20 out of 10 on Saturday only to plummet to nine and a half out of 10 on Monday when you get your Vicodin uh, uh, script filled is not evidence of a win or that opioids are appropriate. It's evidence that withdrawal mediated pain sucks and it sucks big time. The story of prescription drug abuse is complicated. It's tempting to think, well, maybe it was just unethical pharmaceutical companies that were plying the country with drugs. Or maybe it was abusive patients that were demanding medications from their doctors. Or maybe even doctors 
who were so arrogant as to think that as long as you kept giving more and more, everything would be better. The reality is it's complicated. It's almost like the perfect storm where Congress uh, said, you can do a better job. We're going to institute the decade of pain. We're going to implement the fifth vital sign. And the pharmaceutical company said, yeah, we can, we can make medications that are safer. Now, as it turned out, that was more theoretical than real. Mm. There was no evidence that OxyContin would not be abused or misused. And in fact, it clearly was. Patients wanted better pain control. So the decade of pain management and research really was never associated with an equal amount of time of education. And I think that's one of the things we really missed. Demanding public, sure, they played a role. Everybody played a role in this fiasco that we're dealing with. And now, unfortunately, I think because we as health providers haven't really got our metaphorical poop together, the regulators are coming in and telling us what we have to do. And they're telling us what to do without a conscious understanding that there are both intended and unintended consequences to these behaviors. But we have to agree that prescription drug abuse is a fact. And while Howard talked about people with or without the disease of addiction, I would argue that the notion of iatrogenic addiction may have some interesting value in a lawsuit uh, at the civil layer or maybe in a diagnostic criteria. But the reality is you have patients in your practice that are using problematically. They may or may not be addicts. And, and this is one of the reasons why we want to um, involve Mel in the discussion, because in my experience in Canada, the demographics of patients entering in, into drug and treatment have gone from the street addict, heroin user, who has no insurance, is destitute, lost everything, they've, they've become six and seven figure income people who, who are well insured and have a lot of trouble understanding why they're in a residential treatment program being told they're powerless over their drug. And everything about their historical use of that drug would suggest that's the case. If we think that simply curtailing the medical availability of opioids will solve the problem, we're being naive. In fact, it generates a whole new set of problems. When New York State um, did a study looking at the implications of the reformulated OxyContin product, in Canada, we had a fairly simple approach. OxyContin was bad news for a lot of people. So when they reformulated it, they were not allowed to continue to call it Oxy OxyContin. It was called OxyNeo. And it had a significantly lower abuse liability. You couldn't chew it, you couldn't snort it, you couldn't shoot it, lots of good things. But what happened was there was a dramatic upturn in the use of street drugs. And some of those street drugs were contaminated. So it was no longer heroin, it was heroin adulterated with fentanyl, which is uh, 40 to 100 times more potent, or worse, carfentanil. If one of your patients uses a tablet of fentanyl-laced opioid, they may survive. Um, Narcan might well help them. But if they use carfentanil, adulterated, before you dial 911, they're dead. It, it's just that simple. 
that errors being made, single errors by kids in high school and university are resulting in tragic stories that regulators are, are using to define policy. And, you know, anecdotal evidence is not the best way to, to create policy. If you have a physically dependent patient on an unacceptably high dose of opioid and arbitrarily lower or discontinue the drug, the patient may behave apparently. How many of you have had patients in your practice that they're literally crippled up? Everything is telling you that they're suffering. And as you bring out your prescription pad and you start writing Percocet, Adlib, Mite 100, they're looking at you saying, Howard, have you done something with your hair? I mean, you're looking really good. I think he's lost a little weight. This is a complete mood change in the room. And the question has to be asked, is that normal? And all of you know it's not normal. How many of you know you're driving it? How many of you could imagine that this is iatrogenically driven aberrant behavior? So how does that work? <clears throat> Well, I've told the, the, the patient on numerous occasions, I'm not comfortable with this. This isn't going to be continued. I'm going to bring the hammer down on you sometime. But as soon as I brought that prescription pad out, what did I say? Not today. Today's not the day you're going to have to deal with it. And so that tremendous that we sense in the room as abnormal was in fact driven by you driven by the practitioner. You know, unless we look at both sides of the equation, we're going to have a hard time interpreting what abnormal behavior means. Sadly, with uh, China White and, and even more potent, that's fentanyl, uh, illicit fentanyl, and more potent derivatives of fentanyl, the first time you make a mistake may be your last time you make a mistake. And, and the, the news is, is riddled with these tragic stories of lawyers, of doctors, of politicians, of, of police officers, police chiefs, losing their family members, their wives, their daughters, um, because they end up having a problem with opioids on, from the street. Whether we caused it or not it is perhaps important to look back in historical context, but what we do to remedy the problem now. It's like golf. Play the ball where the damn ball lies and acknowledge that we can be part of demand reduction by offering residential treatment in some cases, sometimes outpatient maintenance therapy. There's lots of ways of, of doing this. And coming to meetings like this is obviously the beginning. Now, Howard talked about this. And the important point for the purposes of pain management is continued use despite harm. When a drug does more to you than for you, and yet you continue to use, you're struggling. Something else is happening. It could be chemical coping. It could be uh, addiction. It could be abuse. It could be a bunch of things. But it isn't whatever you think it was from the straight-up perspective. Physical dependence, as Howard said, is an expected state of neuroadaptation. Well, why is that important? Because it's unpredictable. And some of the challenges that I've seen have been uh, well-intentioned pain specialists or family doctors 
who have indicted and then kicked out a patient because they lowered their dose of opioids significantly and didn't go into significant withdrawal, or at least not as much withdrawal as they thought would be necessary for that dose reduction. The reality is opioid tolerance and physical dependence are highly variable things that are unpredictable. The best you can say is, gee, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Tolerance is a state of neuroadaptation, again, that's accepted and expected. The problem with tolerance is, if you're talking about tolerance in the context of pain management, it's often seen as a bad thing. If you're talking about tolerance in the context of cognitive impairment, it's a good thing. Most people who take a tablet that impairs them are reassured that over a period of a few days to a week, they will feel consciously clear of thought and be able to function with the benefits of the medication that you've provided. Mind you, if you're a 25-year-old and you want to feel the effect of the drug, the fact that you develop tolerance quite quickly to the cognitive effects of the drug is, is really disheartening. You never develop tolerance to the constipating effect of the drug. So it develops at different rates in different people to different effects over time, and it's neither good nor bad. Now, at the risk of contradicting Dr. Height, I have met people who've shot the pip out of, a, out of an ace at over 300 yards, so it's more complicated. But whether you use the word drug or process, that's really what we're talking about. We have, we have all treated, or been, at least on this uh, dais, we've treated people who have lost everything because of bad choices that they've made with a substance use disorder, um, with uh, sex and love, uh, gambling, uh, lots of compulsive behaviors. And it's interesting, it's like OCD. If you have OC and you're a pilot, it's a good thing. You don't want an anesthesiologist who's ambivalent about takeoff and landing. But you don't want an OC with a D on it because once it becomes disabling, once it becomes dysfunctional, things don't go so well. This is the population of people that will vex you, that will drive you around the bend, that my Irish clinical fellow that I had a number of years ago said, oh, Dr. Gurley, the heart sink patients come today. And I said, what's a heart sink patient? And she said, it's the one where your heart just drops into your belly because you know there's almost nothing you can do. It just takes your breath out, it takes the breath out of the room. Well, the majority of patients typical primary care deal with are pain patients. They're not simple, but they're not complicated by substance use disorders. And equally, there's a group of patients who truly are only presenting themselves for the purposes of getting a drug. And there may even be a smaller number of people who don't even have a, a substance use disorder to struggle with. What they struggle with is financial opportunity. And they know they're six, 65 years of age, they're very low risk, as my mother would say, riddled with arthritis. Mm -hmm. And everything that the x-ray needs to say is right there. So they get a big bottle of pills, and then every Saturday they go to Denny's. And they make enough through trading the pills to pay for their housing and food for another month. Is that right? No. But is it reality? Absolutely. It's this group of people that can really vex you.
it's the individuals, for, for uh, want of a better term, chose their parents poorly. They come from a family with substance use disorders. You know, if everybody in your family drinks and you don't drink alcohol, you cannot become an alcoholic. That does not change your risk. It changes the expression of risk. You know, everyone asks about alcohol and drugs, and one of the common questions is, when you drink, can you drink everybody under the table? And the patient will say, well, I can drink most people under the table, but not everybody. Who can't you drink? My mom, my dad, and my two sisters. <laughs> that we would call a twofer. That's the family history from hell and minimal responder status and alcohol, and the, the ability to hold alcohol is actually the liability. Sniffing a cork and falling down and going boom is, is somewhat protective. Minimal responder status is really troublesome. And you have to recognize that this population is dynamic. Under certain circumstances, particularly of stress uh, and life circumstances that go against them, they may resume a behavior that previously they had under control. Um, I'm sure Mel has had people who have uh, come back for uh, a, a brief encounter to kind of re-establish their recovery and, and bolster their recovery, but it's not a character comment. When people with substance use disorders become unwell, it isn't a question of will they decompensate. The question is how far do they decompensate and how quickly do they get back on track. So how do we set boundaries? Because interestingly, whether you use the dreaded A word, addiction, or not, Boundaries will play the greatest role in helping you both understand what's wrong with your patient and how to help them stay on track. But you know, most of the patients you're gonna deal with actually have better boundaries than we do. Let's face it, if somebody drops in front, seizes with blood and feces coming out of multiple orifices, what do normal people do? They run away. <laughs> what do all of us do? We went to more them, <laughs> and we think we have to fix them. That's not totally healthy. I mean, it's, it's our profession. I'll acknowledge that. But boundaries are, are things that we have to pay attention to. How many of you have had a patient who you say, you take this medication, it's going to make you feel goofy. It may make you feel a little bit impaired. And they come back in a couple of weeks, and you ask, how's it going? And they say, well, I took the medication. Okay. What did it do? Well, it made me feel funny, a bit goofy. Okay, I told you it would, right? Yes, you, yes, you did. So what did you do? Why well, stopped? Why'd you stop? I told you just keep going and it would get better. And the patient says, I know you did, but you know what? I'm not sure if it wasn't goofier than you thought. You know, I, I, was, I wanted to clarify that with you. That's a healthy response. Contrast that with the young woman who has unremitting knee pain, she calls and leaves a message with me on a Sunday by telephone saying, I'm gonna see you on Thursday, but I can't control the pain, I, I need your help. And I call her back and get her voicemail and say, I don't have your chart in front of me, but if you take the tablet, you take under your tongue, buprenorphine, that you dissolve under the tongue, you can safely double the dose between now and when I see you on Thursday, and that'll give us an idea of whether we're on the right track with medication adjustments. But I don't have your chart, so if that doesn't apply to you, I'm sorry, we'll have to just talk about it on Thursday. Get a call back a couple of hours later, Dr. G, you are the greatest. 
I really want to thank you for calling me back on Sunday. You must have me confused with somebody else. I'm not taking the tablet I put under my tongue. I'm taking methadone. But you said double the dose, and I did. And you know what? It worked great. <laughs> now, how many normal people would do that? That's just not normal. I heard what he said. It didn't apply to me, but I liked the part about double, so I used it. I interpreted it. If she had been during the induction phase of methadone, she would have been dead. The fact that she had a well-established tolerance to methadone allowed her three or four days of kind of woo, and we, re we rejigged her relationship with her medication. The remaining 10%, like this young lady, Strict boundary setting is essential. How many of you have referred patients who have run out of medications early to uh, substance use disorder clinics um, in, in your history? Is that something you would normally do when patients run out? Sure. How many of you know that when they come and we ask, do you ever run out of medications early? The typical answer is no, even though I'm looking reason for referral, chronically overusing medication. And I thought, can they all be lying? What's going on? Then it dawned on me, how do you know when to get your medications refilled? And the answer is, well, when I run out, I just call my doctor. <laughs> you cannot run out of medications early if no one told you how long your damn medications are supposed to last. And it's that laxity in, in the way we practice clinical care that sort of says implicitly, the patient will never do anything that's harmful to themselves. I've had patients admitted to hospital. Uh, a junior staff person says, how much uh, methadone are you on? And the patient says, uh, 100 milligrams a day. And the staff doctor who has authorization to write methadone writes 100 milligrams a day. And then we clarify with the pharmacy that he normally picks up methadone. And he's actually taking 50 milligrams per day. And the staff doctor says, little devil, <laughs> because he's lying. He's playing a bit of a game. But it's our diligence that requires us to check and see is what we're looking at, what we think we're looking at. Treatment agreements, urine drug testing, interval and contingency dispensing. If you're not familiar, interval dispensing, you don't have to see me all the time, but you can see the pharmacist on a regular basis to make sure it's wise to continue on. Contingency dispensing, when you drop off your urine drug screen, you can have your prescription. Well, I peed just before I came to see you, Doc. My, my bad, I'm sorry. Um, of course, I can't ask you to pee on command, but I'll, what I'll have to do is just give you one day of medication, and I know that's going to be expensive for you, but when you come back tomorrow, pee, and then I'll give you the rest of your script, subject to what the urine shows. This is, these are ways you can shift the responsibility into the hands of the patient uh, that otherwise you might think are your own responsibilities. This is a typical <clears throat> doctor-patient relationship, in, at least where I come from. Patient standing at a crossroads, not completely sure which way to go. Um, and they test the limits. They run out of medications a little early. They take them all in the morning instead of the afternoon or evening. Uh, there's a number of things that patients will test. Don't drink them with alcohol. Even people who get put on disulfiram, which is antabuse, will almost all drink on top of antabuse in order to test 
the consequences of that. And unfortunately, many people can drink on top of antabuse if they have an alcohol problem. Not safely, but they can. And they test the limit again until finally they say, you know, Doc, when I chewed my controlled release medication, it worked a lot better. And you say, well, that's not appropriate. Well, you didn't tell me not to chew it. Well, I think it was obvious. But anyway, don't do it again. I'll never do it again, Doc. Until they come and they tell you they snorted their pills. <laughs> now, the first time I, a patient told me he snorted Percocet, I thought, wouldn't the tablet kind of get stuck? Because <laughs> those are big, pretty big tablets. And acetaminophen is actually quite nasty on the nares. But they grind them up, and part of the behavioral drive to using drugs is the preparation, sort of the hunting down and the bagging of the, of the big one. But when they step out of bounds that second time, you reinforce it with that much more vigor until they say they injected their drug. Now, one question we commonly ask patients is, do you ever use illicit drugs? And it's not uncommon for patients to say, no, I've never used illicit drugs. Now, in the normal course of medicine, if A and B means C isn't possible, we go on to D, E, and F. We don't ask about C. But the next question I would ask is, have you ever injected drugs? And to a patient who already told me, I don't use illicit drugs, that seems like a strange question. But the answer is often surprising. Yes, I've injected. What have you injected? Dilaudid that I got from my family doctor. So there are certain things we know in medicine. Are you on medications? No, you're a 34-year-old woman in the emergency room with a chest uh, with a VQ mismatch. The fact that they say they're not on any medications, you still ask, are you on the pill? And the patient says, oh, yeah, I've been on the pill for 20 years. And you realize that they have a pulmonary embolus and, and you treat them accordingly. Similarly, do you use illicit drugs? No. Do you smoke pot like a fiend? <laughs> because marijuana is not on, it's a herb. It's not an illicit drug. Don't assume you know what terminology your, uh, your loyal opposition, your patients are using because you'll be surprised. Non-judgmental questions. How much do you drink? Not that much. Could you drink two cases of beer a night? No, one, one, one case maximum. <laughs> you know, if everybody I drink with drinks two cases of beer a night and I only drink one case of beer, Mel, I'm the designated driver in our group, aren't I? <laughs> you, you've got to keep this in mind. So what we recommended in the universal precautions paradigm was to dare to say, Everybody needs to know where the limits are. The little old lady, the youngster, everybody. If you didn't tell, you know, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. If you didn't tell them, how the heck should they know? I was referred an 85-year-old lady in a wheelchair. Her diagnosis was idiopathic cerebellar degeneration with per peripheral neuropathy. And she was referred to me because she was on 110 milligrams of hydromorphone a day. And needless to say, she was not firing on all cylinders. And her husband, who is a very spry engineer, a former chairman of the board of one of the hospitals, was sitting beside her and said, you know, Dr. Gourley, you're quite frankly the only person who's ever asked us about alcohol or drugs. So I don't know if this is helpful. I just want to put it out there. 
for the past 42 years, we've had six vodka martinis each afternoon. <laughs> and I said, oh, six between the two of you? And he said, oh, no, no, six each. It's a very important social part of our life. And I took my pen and I stroked out idiopathic. I wrote query alcoholic, and her MCV was 105, and her gamma GT was 330. That's a medical student's diagnosis. Cerebellar, yeah, the neur neurology. He was she was referred by a tertiary neurologist. How's that for embarrassing? Oh, my educational points rose through the roof on that one. She got to see me because of the hydromorphone. She needed to see me because wealthy people aren't asked about alcohol and drugs. Other than, is alcohol a problem for you? Not until I start buying the $400 a bottle case, and then, then it's a bit of a problem. So when the patient steps out of bounds, the right answer is to remind them that that's not acceptable. And if they step out of bounds again, you tighten the boundaries. I was referred to a lady who was a lab technologist. She had migraine for 20 years. She was being prescribed a dreaded drug combination called BCEs, barbiturate-containing analgesics, Fiorinol. And Fiorinol is a barbiturate, butabutol, plus uh, aspirin, plus or minus codeine. The codeine is actually the least of anyone's worries. But she was just a train wreck. And the neurologist asked me to see her between cases. And I asked her three questions. The first was, how much are you on? And she said, four capsules a day of C1 half, which is 30 milligrams of uh, codeine phosphate. Second question was, have you ever run out early? And she paused for a moment and then said yes. And then the third question was, when you ran out, have you ever had a seizure? And the neurologist was going, <laughs> Last year, I had to work her up for seizures when she turned 40. And she acknowledged she, she had a seizure. So I said, I'm going to need more time to see you and formulate an opinion. But in the meantime, I want you to continue on with your furanol. And the neurologist said, how should I write this prescription? I said, well, continue on with furanol, but give her five a day. And he said, I've never given her more than four. Why are we giving her five? And the patient looks and says, I'm asking for four, and this guy's willing to give me five. I can work with a doctor like that. <laughs> I mean, that guy's good. And the answer was because she's taking more than five, four a day. He said, well, what, what difference will that make? I said, give her five a day, but only give her one week at a time. And the assumption was that she was running on vapors when she came in for her script refill. And if she was even confident enough to go away with more per diem, she had less per bottle. And she called on the second day and said, Dr. Gordon, I'm afraid I'm, I'm running out of medications. And he said, well, you can't. I'm giving you more than I've ever given you. She said, well, I'm taking a little bit more than five a day. <laughs> he, he said, how many are you taking? She said, nine. And I'm afraid I'm going to have a seizure if I don't get them. There was no challenge. There was no kerfuffle. There was simply a tightening of boundaries in a way that perturbed the system. So how did I know and he didn't? You don't seize when you stop taking four furanol a day. But when you're taking nine or 10 a day and you stop, you seize brilliantly and potentially lethally. So when that patient steps out of bounds yet again, don't kick him to the curb. You know, we've said this time and time again throughout the week. The only thing worse than a substance use disorder
in your practice is one with no anchor at all. The one that's just a free range um, substance user in the community. They're breaking into your families who are having uh, uh, funerals for loved ones that have been in palliative care. These are people who are breaking into pharmacies. And I think if a person goes to jail for 20 years for breaking into a pharmacy, they better be, in my mind, a career criminal. Because if they're one of your patients and they did it because of necessity, I would argue that you played a role in that. And hopefully that's not going to be the case. So universal precautions in pain medicine, no matter how carefully we try to select patients, we'll always need to have a defensible, rational, and compassionate exit strategy for that class of drug. This isn't like ending hormone replacement. Once you recognize that either the, the opioid class of drug is not providing a positive benefit, once you recognize that, you have to deal with it. Because if you don't, everything that happens in the way of risk management following that is without any arguable offsetting benefit. Arbitrarily lowering opioid dose, as per the CDC guidelines, I think is unconscionable. But looking at the CDC guidelines as either a problem or a fact, it's not a problem, it's a fact. We have to deal with facts we try to fix problems, we deal with facts. So how do we deal with the CDC fact? We deal with it as an opportunity to look at people who are on astronomical doses of drugs and say, look, this is a reason to make a change. And then do your best using your skill and cunning to bring them back into line if you can. Some you will easily do it, some you will do it with difficulty, and others you won't. But at least you'll have tried. Aberrant behavior may be iatrogenically driven. And if we don't recognize that, if we don't appreciate it, we're very unlikely to even consider what's going on between you and your patient. It's not always readily apparent. So how do you approach this population of patients? Are they addicts? Are they not? Well, what's the nature of the problem? Is this a pain problem alone, a substance use disorder, or maybe a bit of both? Quite often, I'm sure Bell will say, many very legitimate substance use disorder patients have pain. Yes. And yet they belong in a treatment program. Yes. And there are probably some pain patients who are behaving out of bounds who may or may not benefit from a treatment program, but certainly don't uh, mandate the diagnosis of a substance use disorder. But if you got both, which is dominant, and I can assure you, if you throw all your efforts at pain management with opioids and other medications, and in fact you're dealing with a wife who's returned, or a bottle of Jack Daniels that's never gonna empty, no matter how much effort you put into the opioid class of drugs to treat pain, you'll never ever solve the problem. You have to look at what's dominant. And based on the dominance, Focus. So what do you do when the patient says, I don't want to deal with the Jack Daniels. I like the odd line of cocaine. So, well, we can agree to disagree, but I can't help you uh, in terms of treating your pain in isolation of the bigger picture. What's the nature of the pain? Is this acute? Is it chronic? Is it acute on chronic? And acute on chronic, to, in the interest of time, is often short-acting opioids that peak and trough throughout the day and lead to a reinforcing behavior that 
can be seen as drug seeking. Now one of the things people who use Percocet will tell you is when they start off it's about a four to six hour duration of action. By the time they would come to somebody like me, if they get two to two and a half hours out of Perc, they're laughing. In fact, many will tell you I can set my watch by Percocet. Heck, whoever named them Percocet popped a few before going to marketing. Who would think Perky when you think oxycodone? And yet one of the side effects of oxycodone is commonly known as brain race. And when they take their medications at bedtime, they're exhausted, but they can't shut their head off. You get them off of that molecule, they do completely differently. Is the current pharmacotherapy rational? You know, it's sometimes challenging to say of a colleague's patient, or maybe even of your own, they're on an irrational pharmacotherapy. But typically, irrational pharmacotherapy is the opioids got up to a point where I became somewhat somnolent, so my doctor added methylphenidate as a stimulant. I started taking methylphenidate in excess, and by the time I went to sleep at the end of the day, I couldn't, and so I got the trifecta, opioids, stimulants, and benzodiazepine. I can assure you in a bad outcome, including a regulatory inquiry, you're going to come up short on that recipe. Is the drug doing more to the patient than for the patient? That's a simple question. And sometimes you're going to have to educate the patient. The three most important questions with oral pharmacotherapy that you can ever ask are, what do you like when you wake up in the morning before your first dose? What do you like half an hour after your dose? And what do you like two to three hours after that? Why is that important? Before your dose is trough over 24 hours, the lowest in 24 hours. 20 minutes after dose is typically onset. Things that get better with onset and are eliminated by peak are either therapeutic or withdrawal mediated. If when I wake up in the morning I feel like a train wreck, I take my big whack of opioid and 20 minutes later I'm starting to feel nauseated and by two to three hours I'm drenched in sweat, that may mean that the individual dose is too great but the aggregate 24-hour dose is inadequate. We see that with methadone maintenance quite frequently, especially if they're on inducing agents or if they're pregnant. No matter how big a single whack of methadone you give, a pregnant woman in her third trimester, once daily methadone will very rarely result in stable serum levels. Do I have, and Howard mentioned this earlier, do I have the experience and the resources? I've transferred many patients from the Washer Pain Management Center to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, not because I'm any different at either institution, but the resources at each institution are different. I can monitor a pain patient once a month with urine with no difficulties at a tertiary pain program. I can monitor a patient with a substance use disorder weekly without causing even the slightest wrinkle in the system's performance. Do I have an exit strategy? You know, sometimes just asking the patient, are you tired? You know, have you ever thought about getting off this stuff? And if you have, how's it gone? And, and recognize that there are strategies you can use to do that. The basic strategy is set limits. It's easier to loosen them as time goes on than it is to tighten them as behavior becomes more abnormal. I had a young guy who was going to lose his newborn baby, his wife, and his job because of oxycodone controlled release. And I put him onto buprenorphine and he leveled out be beautifully. And I told him that 
as a pain patient, if he was stable and doing well, he wouldn't have to come every day to the clinic to pick up his medication. He would be treated more like a pain patient than a substance use disorder patient. And after a few months, the clinical fellow came to me and said, Joe's really, really angry. I said, why is that? Well, he's still coming every day and he doesn't know why. Said, okay, well, let's go and talk to him. And I sat down and I asked what the problem is. And he said, well, you said if I was a pain patient and I was doing okay, um, I wouldn't have to come every day. I said, yeah, you're right, but I'm still coming. I said, how much oversight was there when your family doctor was prescribing OxyContin to you? He said, none. I said, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> he said, okay, I just needed somebody to hear me. I just needed that. I just needed to ask, is this something you forgot or is this something that means something? Assess risk initially and then periodically. Don't call an expert like Bell or, or Howard and say, I've got this very low risk patient and the last three urines have been positive for cocaine. What that means is the evaluation tool you used indicated a low risk profile, but the serial forward looking behaviors told you otherwise. You don't have a low risk patient that has anomalous positive cocaines. You have a high risk patient that you initially thought was low risk. Consider referral early rather than late. Addiction medicine can offer you tremendous insights into boundary setting, into feeling confident about what you're doing as being patient-centered. If you wait until the wheels fall off, anybody can spot the, tra the train wreck. You need appropriate monitoring. Urine drug testing, follow-up frequency interval, and con contingency dispensing. <clears throat> Remember, pain and addiction are not mutually exclusive. But having a pain problem uh, with a substance use disorder doesn't negate it, it complicates it. And it can complicate it brutally. I'm sure Mel's gonna be able to talk about people who literally would be pleading, say, but I've got real pain. And, and someone like Mel and his therapists are, are saying, yeah, but you're dying. None of this has worked for you. Let's try something different. So the moral impairment, uh, imperative of undertreatment of pain can't address the very simple fact that all patients need comprehensive evaluations and treatment based on risk and benefit assessment. And there needs to be an assessment that includes an exit strategy. If you're not winning by three months, we're gonna to start to implement a taper and discontinuation. I don't wanna do that. Then you're more than welcome to find a doctor who will see it your way. But I have to do that because I have no meaningful measure to say you're winning as a result of the medication. And if you're not winning, we're subjecting you to endocrinopathies, to both obstructive as well as central sleep apnea. All of these side effects that we previously said ah, don't exist. The reality is if you're not winning, you're losing. There's no coasting here. No ceiling ha should never have meant no limit. The fact that opioid, full opioid agonists have no ceiling is a pharmacologic principle. It was bastardized at the bedside to say, as long as you keep adding more, you'll get more results and that resulted in stratospheric levels of drugs for some patients. And uh, of course, what goes up must come down, but sometimes it doesn't come down elegantly.
all pain doctors need to be talented amateurs in addiction medicine. That doesn't mean you need to dedicate your life or your time to solving addictions problems. It just means you have to periodically say, geez, that's interesting. You know, you did this and this and this, and that made sense to you. Can you help me understand that? And when you can't, would you talk to a colleague of mine who, who may be able to help you understand that? When we talk about separating the motive from the behavior, I'm talking about what we refer to as the immutables. And the immutables are those elements within the forest that make it difficult to see what the picture really is. They're running out of medications early. They're peeing in a bottle or not. And when they do pee, they provide um, urine test results that are abnormal. Those things are immutable. Why they're happening could be because of substance use, chemical coping, addiction, all of these possibilities. But the fact that they're happening is unacceptable. And you'll find family and sometimes even patients much more willing to accept that this is problematic than to suggest that it's an addictive disorder. You don't have to label it. You simply have to address it. Continued use despite harm, multiple dose escalations, running out of medications early. The most common way patients get into trouble with your medications are borrowing from tomorrow to pay for today. And if you ask that, if you only ask about on average how much do you take, you're missing a great opportunity because the real question you want to ask is, on a really bad day, what's the most you've had to take? And then when they tell you it's three or four times what they're normally being prescribed, the companion question is, then what did you do on the days when you didn't have enough? And it's sort of like one day at a time for evil. Just for today, I'll use as many pills as I think I need because maybe tomorrow will be better. Mel, how many times is tomorrow better when you don't have enough? Never. Never enough. <laughs> Zero. So these behaviors are inarguably unacceptable. Why they occur can be the source of much confusion. Uh, a residential treatment program can create uh, these problems uh, very elegantly. But addiction's only one element of the differential diagnosis. Balance is difficult, but it's necessary in order to achieve some kind of improvement what we're looking at. Denying the real risks associated with the therapeutic use of opioids has done nothing to ensure their availability for legitimate medical purposes. But they do indirectly encourage the development of the illicit drug trade, and they may, in fact, lead to a challenging regulatory backlash that we're certainly dealing with. And we're going to have to use a lot of effort and cunning to get this train back on the trail. The safe and effective use of opioids in medical care requires embracing both sides of this challenging coin. Without a doubt, the most difficult patient to deal with is the one who sees their pain problems as a reason to continue to use opioids, even when objective evidence indicates these drugs to be problematic. Moving the patient from where they are to where they need to be is the challenge of any skilled practitioner. So with that, I think we'll move on with Mel's talk. And if you have a, a short question or two, you're more than welcome. Otherwise, we'll move on from there. Thanks very much. <clears throat> All right. We should have some time for questions uh, 
as we go on. <clears throat> so the, the title of my brief talk is, Is It Addiction and So What? And I think Doug and Howard have both sort of set the stage for my remarks. Um, really, the, the difference between addiction and what we'll call dependence is a distinction without a difference. And the clinical implication for your patient who comes into your office is much, more about, much less about the label than it is about management of that patient. So I, I want to present one case. Um, Mr. Uh, Ellis was taking, uh, that's not his real name, Oxycontin, 80 milligrams BID, Oxycodone, short-acting, 15 milligrams, 6 to 8 per day, which is 375 uh, milligrams of morphine equivalent per day. Carzoprodol, 350 milligrams, 1 or 2 per day. Alprazolam, a milligram, 1 or 2 per day. Zolpidem, 10 milligrams HS. And Adderall, 30 milligrams BID. Does that sound at all familiar to anybody? Pretty typical for some. Hopefully not the majority of the cases in your practice, but those are the ones that I think are the most challenging. Uh, Mr. Ellis also smoked a pack of cigarettes per day. He had COPD and sleep apnea. He refuses to use a CPAP. He does use oxygen uh, intermittently. He's chronically depressed and uh, takes uh, duloxetine. Here's the key. He takes his medications as prescribed. He never runs out. He gets that supply of medication. That's the amount of medication that is offered to him every month by his physician. The dose has gradually increased over eight years after he had his third back surgery. So he has failed back syndrome. We're all familiar with that terminology and, and the complexity that that offers. His pain on that regimen is 8 out of 10, 90% of the time. He reports that when he takes an oxycodone and an oxycontin together, so that's twice a day, his pain will go down to a 5 or 6 out of 10 for about an hour or two. He spends 12 to 16 hours of the day in bed. So his function is pretty marginal. He drives a car. In fact, the reason he comes to the attention of, of your practice is that he had a minor accident. He hit the side of the garage going in, the garage that he built. So there's some level of impairment. Um, he has a diagnosis of spinal stenosis. Thankfully, nobody wants to operate on, on him a fourth time. He's married. His wife when she was called into the office to have a discussion about him, also takes pain medications. She has her own supply from her own pain doc, not the same doctor. Um, and they, do not, they report that they don't share medications. He fell down a number of times. He uh, dislocated his shoulder one time. As a consequence, his pain increased. So... Uh, oh, and then he fell a second time and he had a subdural hematoma with respiratory failure. So the question is, is this addiction? Is, is, what do you think? Does this guy have addiction? Substance use disorder? It's, it's, a, it's an intriguing question. And, I, and I'll, I'll spend a little time sort of elucidating that. I'm not going to answer the question, by the way. Let me ask you another question. Let's say you think, no, he doesn't have addiction. He clearly has dependence. Would we all agree he has dependence? Does he have a, a, a dependence with a kick? There's something more to the story than just dependence like somebody on antihypertensives, right? So 
complex dependence, complex persistent dependence. Jane Ballantyne, I think, coined that term, and it's one that we use at the center very often. It's something more than taking medication as prescribed and everything's hunky-dory. But it's not the same as somebody who is using heroin and methamphetamine or drinking alcoholically in addition to taking pain medications. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say he comes in and he says, you know, I've started chewing my oxycodone. And, and as Doug points out, let's ask why. He chooses oxycodone because if he chews it, it gives him a little more pain relief in the instant, and that lasts just a little bit longer. So there's a really good reason for it. He gets better, better results in his mind because his pain is diminished. Now, ask him, do, do you ever chew your Oxycontin? Oh, no, I, the doctor told me I shouldn't do that. That would be dangerous. I would never do that. So he really is fully compliant with the treatment program because the doctor didn't say, don't chew your Oxycodone. Is that addiction? Yes, no? That chewing the oxycodone would convince you that he has addiction. It's a little, right? It's, it's more in that direction. He's compliant, but he's reluctant to wean off his meds. In fact, he really wants higher dose of medication, and he wants you to increase his sleep medication because he's sleeping only two hours in the evening. You know, he, he takes Adderall, and he, he sleeps 12 hours. You know, he's in bed 12 hours out of the day. Is he opioid-seeking? by chewing his oxycodone? Or is he relief-seeking? You know, is the, the uh, person with prostatism potty-seeking because they go to the bathroom every couple hours? Nobody thinks that's funny. Potty-seeking. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Oh, there you go. It's kind of funny, right? So, but again, something more than dependence. Maybe it's iatrogenic dependence because the, the doc's involved in this process. How about a 33-year-old woman with chronic knee pain who states she has bone-on-bone -bone changes, she needs a new knee, but nobody will give it to her because she's too young. She uses fentanyl 50 micrograms every two days, every 48 hours, because it doesn't last 72 hours. She's been on it a while. And uh, hydrocodone 10 milligrams, four or five per day for breakthrough pain, 170 MEDs. She, too, smokes a pack of cigarettes per day. She has a medical marijuana card, and, and uh, she smokes the high-THC version, purple haze, coming out of the dispensary in her neighborhood, and she uses about a, an ounce of that per week. Um, she uses methamphetamine on weekends, ecstasy on weekends, or molly, and she smoked heroin to enhance her pain relief. So does she have addiction? Nobody would doubt that, right? So that's substance use disorder in its, in its best form. Are they different patients? And is the treatment for those patients going to be different? For, for this patient, certainly, her boundary between licit and illicit drug use was blurry. Um, so the, the key here is that there is a powerful reinforcing effect of the drug. You know, we've talked a little bit, Howard uh, talked about the dopamine system. I mean, the problem is we're working in the mood center of the brain the, the nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area. It's where reward is based. And in, in certain patients, because of their chronic use of these drugs, the, the drug has now developed survival salience that's much more important than anything else that's beneficial to the organism. As a result of that, they continue to use this substance even though the consequences are negative. So 
And as I go on, I mean, I, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the similarities that are, that are in common for all of these patients and then try and differentiate a little bit about how we make the diagnosis and look at some of the, the more recent, with all due respect, gentlemen, diagnostic criteria that we have, uh, which I know Howard doesn't like, but too bad. So, you know, the things that these patients have in common, and Doug, you know, I, I'm going to take issue with yours, is legitimacy of pain. In my experience, the pain is real. All pain is real. And when we don't believe that the patient has real pain, we do a disservice to that patient. Now, what does pain mean, and what does the report of pain mean to the patient is really an, an issue. You know, uh, Mr. Ellis comes in with real legitimate pain. So does the young woman. She has legitimate pain. She has a pain generator. But what pain means to her is much different than what it means to Mr. Ellis because it means the source of getting drugs that get her high. But the pain is real, and uh, the cost of disbelief is substantial. There's an article that was in uh, JAMA, or uh, Journal of American, yeah, JAMA uh, last year, the cost of disbelief. And it's really the cost of us not, you know, sitting across from a patient and calling them a liar, you know, with our, with our body uh, mechanics or with our, with our words. And usually it's not with words. So the, the real dilemma here is, is it real pain or is it emotional pain? And that's the question I get asked all the time, and I always say the same answer. Yes, yes, it's real pain, and yes, it's emotional pain, because emotions drive the experience of chronic pain. For Mr. Ellis and for the young woman with uh, heroin addiction, the drive for uh, a lot of what the drive was to use the drugs was for relief of emotional distress. I had a patient who was in a lecture that I gave about this very topic, and she looked at me and she said, are you telling me my pain is in my head? And I said, well, you have chronic headaches, so where else do you think your pain is? But you get it. The implication was that it was somehow less real, and I just got through telling her that the pain is real. However, and hopefully this audience is familiar with central sensitization and the fact that, in fact, the place where pain really exists in chronic pain, the signature of chronic pain is very different than acute pain. It's not in the thalamus. It's in the very places where the drugs work, nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, the reward centers. And Abkarian and his group in Northwestern have really implied that really the, the process of chronic pain is very similar to the process of, of addiction. And if you have co-occurring uh, addiction and substance use, you're going to see a... a, a a, synergy, a negative synergism. The, the estimates are about 29 to 60 percent of patients with opioid addiction have chronic pain. So it's a very high incidence situation. The third issue, and you know, I don't think I'll get much argument from this audience, but opioids often make pain worse in the ways that Doug talked about and Howard talked about. Continued use over time with escalating dosage often isn't the, the optimal treatment for chronic pain. I, I think people will, will agree with me on that. Um, if not, you know, I have the microphone for another few minutes, and then you can, uh, you can, uh, yeah, right. Treat to improve function, we've heard that, you know, giving somebody enough medication to put them to sleep is not good pain treatment. We want people functional, and it turns out if you give somebody good functional improvement, the pain score is a lot less important. So my suggestion is rather than asking what's your pain score, Really, the question ought to be, how is your life? And if it's not beneficial, how can we move towards making it a better life? 
experience. And the last is that expectations influence outcome. Our minds are very powerful. Our patients' minds are very powerful. And it turns out that our mindset, when we meet with a patient and what we set out for that patient, in other words, this treatment will help you. When you exercise, you will be better. Imparting that with belief actually impacts uh, outcomes, just like placebos work. You know, we know that they work almost as good as drugs, uh, but not quite. So we'll, we'll prescribe a drug that has lots of side effects and high cost versus giving somebody uh, uh, the ability to, 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 to self-treat. Uh, so acute pain becomes chronic pain because of sustained activation of the central nervous system, both with addiction and with chronic pain. And we know that the central nervous system is plastic. They're structurally modeling over time. And the brain changes in response to the chronic pain signal. Uh, healthy brain on the top, and this is from uh, uh, Dr. Abkarian at Northwestern, the, the chronic pain signature is very, very and we know that certain people are more sensitive to pain signal. And, and we want to, well, l let me say that uh, COMT, catecholam of the transferase, mediates nociception to pain differently in different patients. Certain people have a tendency to catastrophize and have more pain in response to a benign stimulus. So if Doug has the, the escalating uh, pain experience, and he's very sensitive, that would mean I would poke Doug very lightly with enough pressure to blanch my fingernail, and he would respond and say, oh my God, oh, you've hurt me so bad, what, leave me alone, don't do that. Now, what would we say about Doug? Don't be nice. I've got man flu. <laughs> we, most of us would think wuss, wimp, right? Worse. We're not going to say it, because we're a very polite crowd here, and it is Friday afternoon. But we, we judge people's pain tolerance. When they sit in front of us and they wince in response to a stimulus that we would not wince about, it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't compute, and we end up judging them. And, and that's, that's a disservice to the patient. It really and truly is. And the, the precipitants of uh, CMT variants are related to genetics and to trauma. So uh, trauma is very often and very heavily involved. There were a few courses during the course of pain week about this, but people who've had sexual trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma, and experienced or witnessed uh, horrific events end up with chronic pain syndrome more often than not. And that's really what sensitization is. This is a, a drawing by Moskowitz looking at the pain centers and looking at the central sensitization response. It's as if the volume knobs turned up. And, you know, if we have a patient like this, they may be more responsive to drugs because the drugs are going to work in the part of the brain that uh, the, the nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area, the reward centers of the brain, that's where these drugs work. That's the effect that the drugs give. Pain management goals, uh, I've already said, uh, maintain or improve function and reduce the discomfort ought to be third, not first in our uh, interview of these folks. Uh, you know, here's a, a simple approach to treating non-malignant pain. If it hurts, give ibuprofen. If it hurts a lot, give hydrocodone. If it really hurts, give something stronger. If it still really hurts, give more. If it really hurts for a long time, keep giving more. And if it's getting worse no matter what I prescribe, fire the patient. <laughs> right? I mean, we would all agree that there's something wrong with that, but that is not out of the line, you know, and, and you know, it's sort of a distortion of setting boundaries, I suppose. But 
we really lead patients along this course and when we find that they become uh, aberrant or they are developing aberrant behaviors, which is a response to taking drugs in combination with their predisposed tendencies, we don't know what to do. And, you know, the last resort ought to be firing the patient. And I'm sure that, Doug, in your practice, you would say the, the same. So opioids, obviously, are clinically efficacious and should be administered in a trial fashion. Uh, certainly, we ought to be very vigilant because some people are going to respond abnormally, and we ought to be aware that there are predisposing factors to what's likely to make somebody respond. But more importantly, we ought to do an ongoing assessment. The five A's, I think, were referred to. What's the analgesia level? Are there aberrant behaviors? Are, uh, what's the activities of daily living? By all means, are there aberrant behaviors? Did I say that? Yeah. Analgesia. Analgesia and uh, addiction. Affect. So the you know is it making somebody worse in terms of their mood? And the last is 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 addiction developing? And the the slope along the line from Mr. Ellis to to uh, let's call her Mrs. Jones is a is a slippery one. And the the shift from complex dependence to addiction is often almost imperceptible. I can tell you what happens to the folks who have complex persistent dependence, and we see a lot of those folks. I mean. We're an addiction treatment program. We're a tertiary referral center. So these are people who have done very badly on opioids. Nobody would argue. These are the, these are the heart sink patients. These are the ones that come to your practice and you wish they didn't. And it's not because you, you're uh, heartless. It's because you, you don't know what to do for them. So those are the folks, you know, I usually get a call, sorry about this one, Mel you know, because they, they're driving everybody crazy in the clinic and they're, they're, you know, breaking rules and they don't follow their contract. And, they, and then they get good for a, or they, they behave for a while, you know. They stop doing aberrant things and then they start up again because they have a chronic disease that's not, you know, it's not going away. Um, so in my clinic, we see a lot of people who have complex dependence. And I just met with one on... Uh, this morning, and she's angry all the time because she's being forced into a, a mold, in her opinion, that doesn't fit. Uh, if if a, a patient like that goes to an addiction treatment program and gets a label of addiction and they do not identify as an addict, they, they are a square peg in a round hole. So we do very, uh, we try very hard not to do that. We have a a workbook in the chapter on am I an addict is about 12 pages long. And at the end of that chapter, the answer is we really don't care if you're an addict. The question is what do you have to do? And one of the things is that if opioids are not working well in your life, you have to do something about that. And it's either diminish the dose uh, or get off the opioids. And we take people off opioids, and I can tell you, 90% of patients have much less pain off opioids than on opioids. Now, again, that's not the average patient that you're seeing. These are the outliers that are really in trouble with their opioids, not necessarily addicted. So what's the difference between being addicted to painkillers and just really, really liking them a lot? I actually had a patient who said, I'm not, I don't have addiction, I have dyslexia. The bottle said one every four hours, and I took four every one hour. So, you know, how can you blame me? One foolproof way to diagnose addiction is to diagnose tobacco use disorder. I can tell you that people come off opioids and benzos and alcohol and stimulants at our clinic, and that drug, we allow people to smoke, and 80% of our, our chronic pain patients are 
significant smokers, and I cannot, we have very little success in motivating people to, to stop smoking. It's all, I'll do it later, and the data is very clear. People who have substance use disorder who quit smoking do much better than people who don't. And furthermore, people who have chronic pain do much better with their pain if they quit smoking. So if somebody is a smoker in your practice who takes opioids in some, with some modicum of control, they have the diagnosis of tobacco use disorder, which is one of the addictive diseases. How do you diagnose it? Diagnosing addiction is, is in a crappy state of art. We don't have a blood test. We don't have a brain scan. We have this, this book, DSM-5, Diagnostic Statistical Manual from the American Psychiatric Association, and it's, I think it's pretty inadequate. You, do you like it? No. You like it? Okay. At least I'm agreeing on something. So the DSM-4 didn't use the word addiction. The DSM-5 uses the word addictive disease, but they call it substance use disorder in the terminology. So it would be opiate use disorder, alcohol use disorder, methamphetamine use disorder. And there are 11 criteria. If you meet two to three of the criteria, you have a mild case. If you meet four or five of these criteria, you have a moderate case. And if you have six or more, you have a severe case. They have eliminated the term drug abuse from the, from the literature. They don't think there's abuse and dependence. They think there's mild, moderate, and severe, and it's all on a spectrum of substance use. And I'll go through these and, and sort of help categorize them. So it's about control. So taking the substance larger and for longer amounts than you meant to, trying to cut down or quit, and spending time using or recovering from use all imply that something... Now, but think about your pain patient and which one of these criteria they met. Time use, using or recovering from use might just be, I, I, I use on a regular basis, I have to go to the doctor, I have to go to the pharmacy, uh, I go to the emergency room once a month. Uh, wanting to cut down, I really don't want to take these drugs, but I have to because of the pain. Taking the substance in larger amounts, uh, I... I take, you know, the, the patient that Doug described, I take the pill because I'm in pain and I'm taking nine instead of six and I don't even realize that except that I don't have any left at the last 10 days of my, uh, um, the course of treatment. Craving for the p person with chronic pain is, is pain. You know, it hurts, I want it to stop hurting and I want the drug. Uh, and then comes the consequences. So homework or school problems because of substance use, uh, problems in relationships, recreational activities, uh, social or work problems, uh, and use, uh, using substances even when in danger and continuing to use um, despite physical or psychological problems. All consequences, if, if, the, if the, it's a consequence of pain, would you say that that's a, a problem with substance use? Is it a substance use disorder, even though pain drives it? And then the last two are tolerance and physical dependence, but you may know that in the DSM-5 criteria, those don't count if the prescription is provided by a doctor. So if it's a, if it's a prescribed substance, you don't count tolerance and physical dependence because they're expected outcomes. So I think the ASAM definition, which is now, uh, it's a page long, and the long definition is about 10 pages. If you're interested, ASAM.org, and I'll go through it quickly because my time is short, but addiction is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, or related circuitry, the part of the brain that we've been talking about, the midbrain. Dysfunction leads to biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. Pain 
could equally be, be said to be biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And here's the key phrase in this definition. It's reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward, which is getting high, but re and or relief. So pathological pursuit of relief is where complex dependence tends to fall some of the time. And it's by substance use or behaviors, as Howard pointed out. And then we have an ABCD, inability to abstain, uh, behavioral control problems, craving, diminished recognition, which is denial, and dysfunctional emotional response. It's subject to relapse and remission, and it needs treatment. It's progressive and, and, can, and can lead to death. Um, so the truth about addiction is it's not about the drug, it's about the brain. And certain brains are more vulnerable to the substance. We could differentiate addiction from complex dependence and say complex dependence is probably a result of taking medication. Addiction is not. Addiction is a is a brain abnormality that's present probably from birth, but certainly early on in life. It's not about the quantity and frequency of use, it's the quality of use, the pattern of use, the relationship the person has to their drug, and how the person with addiction has changed when using. So that differentiation between pain patients and drug abusers is not correct, and actually aberrant drug use is common in 63% of uh, pain, uh, patients who got opiates for pain, 35% of the patients who take opioids for pain met the DSM-5 criteria for addiction, and 92% of opioid overdose decedents had prescriptions of, of uh, opioids for pain. So pain, there's an overlap. That, that used to be a sort of one of those Venn diagrams, but it didn't work on the slide. So we mentioned that one of the untoward consequences of limiting supply is uh, going elsewhere, and heroin is, uh, has made a big comeback. Heroin deaths are up compared to opioid, opioid analgesics. If we have time later, we can talk about medication-assisted treatments uh, in terms of uh, recovery process. Certainly substituting a safer medication makes some sense. So methadone in a clinic or buprenorphine in a physician's office who's trained to dispense it, naltrexone to block the opioid receptor, and naloxone to reverse overdose. And I think I'll just skip through these and uh, see if we want to... Well, I'll just say that uh, in, the, in the sake of time, uh, non-medication treatments are effective. Uh, Roger Filligan, did anybody hear him this morning? He was talking about resilience. Brilliant talk. And what he really said was that the best correlate of positive outcome with chronic pain is exercise. So movement, motion is lotion. Uh, getting people moving in, in a gradual fashion, whether they have addiction or complex dependence, is key. Uh, we, we work with a chiropractor and massage and acupuncturist and nutrition. It's really the most important thing we do is in a group process people's feeling of difference but also finding some similarities. And this woman that I mentioned with complex dependence is trying to, is struggling to, tr to find common ground with our other patients who have addiction whether she benefits from going to 12-step program or not is going to remain to be seen. We can't force her once she leaves the center. Uh, Mindfulness-based stress reduction, Dr. Zaiden is, is speaking this evening uh, at 540. I suggest you go if you're interested. And uh, yoga, and I'll, I'll close with this. Research says that uh, drugs give the same benefit as yoga. Anybody do yoga in, in the room? So you may know this pose, the Halasana pose. Uh, the guy on the right is the drug effect. He's got that down pretty well. Uh, child's pose, I can't get my hips down any better than he can. Uh, and the last is Savasana, the corpse pose, uh, and he's got that down perfectly. So we have some time. You want me to take questions or questions for all of us? What's your pleasure? I, I have one question. 
Oh, you have a question. I do. And your voice is almost gone, so we're in pretty good shape. We're in good shape. Yes, this is working well. Thank you very much for the talk. Thank you. The question that I have is that by admitting that uh, tolerance and, and withdrawal only come into play when physicians are not involved in the picture, does that put a disproportionate weight on the potential for physicians by firing a patient to generate the aberrant behavior that we've been talking about? So in other words, if... if uh, Iatrogenesis imperfecta. Yeah. So if you cut somebody off from their medications and they then go elsewhere, and because they are tolerant and physically dependent, they'll have a manifestation of addiction and aberrant behavior. Well, and as, I long think, as, the, as long as the doctor continues the course, as you said with the first case... It's not it, a diagnosis. It, 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 it isn't, and yet it, undoubtedly they're in trouble. Right. So I, I think that was a stupid plan to, oh, to okay. exclude tolerance and physical dependence. I understand why they did it. You know, they didn't want to label somebody or count it to labeling somebody with addiction who's going to your office. And, you know, they didn't want to say Mr. Ellis had addiction who was taking his meds as prescribed, but there were a bunch of us who wondered if Mr. Ellis had addiction. But the, the goal of the psychiatrist who put this plan together was let's not count tolerance and physical dependence because doctors prescribe medication to patients and if they are taking them as prescribed, they shouldn't be judged as having addiction. And I think that was based in a stigmatized version of the diagnosis of addiction, and I think it's a mistake. It's a mistake, and also I think very strongly the OxyContin problem is very, very interesting, is the fact that, think about it, you had a whole bunch of people prescribed a whole bunch of OxyContin, and they were cut off. And they were probably good people who didn't have an ounce of addiction in their body, but then started to go into withdrawal and got desperate, and that led to A, B, C, and D. I think a lot of it was government-driven and physician-driven. Just remember, though, of the not one ounce of addiction, statistically, the amount of opioid we poured into society has to mean that we poured it into addicts as well as non-addicts. Oh, sure. yeah. and, and so the challenge that we're dealing with now is how to undo this mess uh, in a patient-centered fashion that has some evidence behind it. Now, one thing about the legitimate versus appropriate, just in case I didn't clarify it before, uh, but I think you nodded off at that moment, to be honest. <laughs> um, a legitimate reason yeah. for prescribing opioids does not make the prescription of opioids appropriate. No. In other words, having very real pain may, in one patient's case, make, make uh, opioids appropriate, in another person's case, make it completely inappropriate. Not only did I not nod off, but I wrote that down because I thought it was such a wise statement. But, but the point is legitimate pain. No, nope. legitimate use of the meds. Yeah, yeah. Okay. the pain is legitimate a priori. Yeah, and that's, that was really the issue that I wanted to yeah. bring out. Uh, so not to, to disagree with you, but to confirm that, that you're... This is uh, going to be a dinner conversation, sense. I can tell. <laughs> No, but, I mean, I really think that the, the, the reality of pain, I mean, pharma, you know, we, we can't blame pharma for the epidemic, but we can say that they came to my office when I was practicing as a family doc, and they said, if, you, if your patient has legitimate pain, they can't get addicted, and they won't have withdrawal. And that's just nonsense. I was going to say a different word. 
misappropriation of truth, right? So alternative facts. Yeah, and and but but the the legitimacy, and I can tell you that patients are very. You know, one of the things you said was you know how uh, listening to the patient and really what seems to be so isn't really so. The reason Mr. Ellis chewed his oxycodone was because he was in pain and it worked well. He had no, you know, I mean, it's an aberrant behavior that you would label addiction, but it was really more of the pain story. And when you sit down with him and you understand that, I think you come away with a different conclusion. Isn't that compulsive? To chew? I don't know. Do you, do you think? To say, what, why do you say you that? Right on your sink, you know, take orally or <laughs> what's next when he, when he snorts it, the question is when he snorts it, because he wants the pain relief, he's really seeking the pain relief, is it compulsive yet? Yeah. Is it an addictive behavior? It, it, it's a continuum that we constantly it's, struggle yes. with, and that's why one of the reasons why inviting a patient with uncertainty uh, in such cases is to put them into an environment where they can be assessed. And sometimes the assessment comes out uh, chemical coping. Sometimes it comes out problematic use and over-reliance on medications. Some of the pa I referred a lot of patients over my career to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health's inpatient facility. None of them were sent there to be diagnosed with addiction. They were or not. They were all sent there to have their medication rationalized. The problem was they published an all-comers um, article in a peer-reviewed journal that basically said, look at these 500 addicts that are on prescription medication. The reality is the individual in charge of the medical uh, center was not ASAM qualified, mm -hmm. was not particularly skilled in the diagnosis of addiction, and, and beyond that, the fact is that it's really about gray. And, yeah. and that's where sometimes perturbing the system will give the patient that opportunity to say, gee, Dr. Paul, you know, maybe I have more in common with addicts than I thought. Right, well, and what, that is what happens is in our center. You know, they'll sit in a room with a bunch of addicts who say, wait a minute, that isn't right, that doesn't make any sense. You're not supposed, you know, just because a doctor didn't say don't do it, just what you said. And, and to have a peer yeah. or, or somebody powerful. similar tell you that is very different than having a doctor diagnose it. So, but, you know, I, I, I think it's addiction hands down, you know, uh, but, but it is interesting how people interpret it for themselves. And it, isn't it also interesting the power that we have as prescribers to shield people almost to their detriment? Yeah. And that's why one of, the, one of the things that troubles me the most is when a patient dies essentially doing exactly what their doctor told them to do or, or didn't, stopping an en enzyme inducer, for example, and, uh, without appreciating the fact that the levels of drug are going to go up, that person's dead. Mm. Whether they were an addict or not yeah. is kind of immaterial. And I, I think the message sometimes we lose is, as you go up in pharmacologic dose, whether it's milligram equivalents or, or simply numerical, risk goes up. And from yesterday, we can debate whether it's a two-fold odds ratio or four-fold or whatever. But risk goes up as dose goes up. And the companion to that is that probability of treatment success goes down. You know, simple is, is generally better. And for many patients who aren't winning, when they actually come off of opioids and say something like, well, but Dr. Paul, what will I do when my migraine comes back? And you just say, take it easy. Have you got a migraine today? Yes. 
And to many people's surprise, they have more control and they have more quality of life. Yeah. So this isn't about pillorying opioids. Mm -hmm. It's about recognizing that just because you're losing on opioids doesn't mean you can't win. Yeah, with well, a so. change. Uh, I, I, one thing I didn't say but I uh, alluded to is treatment implications are different if you have addiction versus complex dependence. And we have patients in our milieu who have either or. So one of the examples is uh, abstinence. If somebody has complex dependence, is it okay for them to drink alcohol? Glass of wine a week. If somebody has addiction, it's not because addiction is a loss of control disease. If somebody's on opioids, you might say it's not. But if somebody d doesn't have addiction and takes an occasional opioid or takes opioids uh, with, with, in a marginally controlled fashion, is it okay for them to use CBD oil you know, versus somebody who has addiction or use the herb uh, marijuana? I love that. I, I wrote that down too. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know... Is 12 steps the place for these pro for these folks? 12-step programs are really cool. You know, there is a spiritual aspect to 12-step programs, and when we have a, a complex dependence patient, we'll encourage them to do the first step, which is I'm powerless over my drug or my addiction. Do the first step on pain, and every pain patient will admit that they are powerless over their pain, and their life is unmanageable, and that's the way they work through the program. But when they go to an AA meeting and somebody says, you're in denial, you're really an alcoholic or an addict, you know, why don't you just say so? It bothers them. It bothers them a lot. And it's not true. You know, I used to argue with people and say, look, here's the DSM, you're an addict. And, you know, they MF me behind my back, you know. They, they, so there's no convincing somebody. It's really that, that stages of change and motivational interviewing that helps people see what the truth is for them. One, one interesting thing about AA and NA uh, whether it's the, the steps, uh, whether it's admitting powerlessness, for the vast majority of people, it's doing things differently. Yeah. And for, for a doctor who gets into trouble with drugs or alcohol, or a, a seven-figure income banker who gets into trouble with alcohol or drugs, when they go to a church basement and talk about how they feel, that's about as different as you're ever going to get. And recovery is about change. Yeah. It's about growth. And I, you know, I think we can get hung up on the details, but I've had many patients balk at being labeled and yet embrace it at some point down the road. And my question often is, is that helpful to you? Yeah. And, and if it is helpful, why? Um, and often it's because I want to make sure my next doctor doesn't um, kind of go down a road that I can't afford to uh, get off of. I actually, the same patient that I mentioned who has complex dependence said, oh, those AA meetings, all they do is complain all day, and uh, you know, there's nothing there for me. And I said, I defy you to go to a 12-step meeting and not come away with three things that are meaningful and relevant to your life. And she's not come back to me to refute that statement. <laughs> but she did not say thank you when I said it. Yeah. Good. So obviously patients come to your office all the time and they want things that you don't think are good for them and they will say often whatever they need to say to get you to change your mind um, to increase the dose to you know whatever and and it's really great to say hold boundaries um, do they ever push your buttons and if so how do you 
move into that place of being the compassionate provider? Who's able to hold the boundaries? It's a really astute question, and I imagine it applies to those of you that survived the last two hours and you're still here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these patients are extraordinarily difficult. You know, they're not called heart-sick patients for nothing. So my clinical approach to people with chronic pain, the, the very first thing I do, and I, I, I was, again, at the center with this one woman. Let's call her Joanne which is not her real name, she's angry all the time. She's belligerent. She's alienating. She differentiates. You know, she tells everybody what's wrong with them, and I don't have this. And you know, I just was taking my Oxycontin as prescribed, and my family was the one who made me come here, you know, and this interventionist and blah, blah, blah. And she was really angry at the physician who saw her this morning. And the circumstance was that she said she had uh, terrible stomach cramps, and her back was really acting up. And he said, well, what do you want, Oxycontin? <laughs> and she felt demeaned. She felt diminished. And I sat with her, and my, tent, you know, my, my sort of misogynistic way is to intervene and say, oh, no, and oh, he didn't. And, and I didn't do any of that. I just sat and listened. And the power of sitting with somebody and listening, especially when you have nothing to do, because we got nothing to do when somebody is just angry. And, and really having that patient feel listened to is undescribable. So I think that's where the process starts. Now, people have different motives. You know, I mean, they could just be wanting to get more drugs from you and sell them on the street. But I don't think that's the case with most of our patients. I think most of our patients come in because of a pain condition and a lot of emotional distress that goes along with that, and they are medicating that. They, they may be medicating anxiety. They may be medicating depression. They may be medicating insomnia. Or they may be medicating fatigue. So getting to the root, I mean, to have that relationship is, is paramount. And then in that working relationship, so I said to her, you know, what, what is it that I can do for you, if anything? I can't undo what's happened. You know, what is it that I might do that would help you? And she said, I want you to talk to him and tell him what he did. Because I don't feel like, I don't even want to see that guy. And I did. I went and I talked to the doctor, and he, <laughs> with all due respect, he's a great doc, but he was pretty defensive about it. He said, no, I didn't say that. I said this. And I said, well, here's what she heard. And he called me just a little while ago, and he said, you know, I sat with her, and she heard me, and I heard her. Pretty much for the first time in three weeks. Thank you. You know what? One thing, though, some very, very skilled people come and rock you back on your heels, mm -hmm. and, and it is important for you to listen to how you... If you get a gut feeling of seduction, there's a good chance that's going on. If you get angry, there's a good chance your patient's angry. I had a, a fellow who was using 400 bikes per hour, Q24 hours of transdermal fentanyl. He was on hydromorphone. His arguable uh, pain problem was a brachial plexopathy due to lead uh, toxicity from a gunshot wound in uh, Detroit. He was a player. He was in a wheelchair. And he came for an assessment from a neurologist, a tertiary neurologist, and I agreed that we would put him onto methadone. And he had to come in, bring his medications in with him. He came in, and when he came in, he had a big bottle of methadone tablets. 
I said, where the heck did you get these methadone tablets from? He got them from his neurologist who made the referral, who said he just wanted to help you out, Dr. Gourlay, by giving you a bit of a leg up. And, the, the, and I, I said, okay, we're going to start you on, on uh, methadone. Um, have you taken half of your transdermal fentanyls off? He said, no. He said, why didn't you do In other words, all the things that we told him in preparation, he didn't do. And the long and the short of it was, at the end of the session, I got up and I walked out and I said to my nurse with a smile on my face, this guy is either the sickest person I've ever met in my life or the most skilled. Mm -hmm. And she said, why would you say that? And the answer was, because despite every fiber of my body that knew it was not right to, pr to provide him with a prescription, I was that close. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to respect that level of skill. Now, he, he almost certainly is going to come to significant harm. And, and I'm sort of saying it tongue-in-cheek, but recognize that as long as you know what the right thing to do is in your heart of hearts, and as long as the motivation behind doing it is safety, it becomes difficult, even if you're wrong, it becomes difficult to find fault with you uh, uh, under those circumstances. One of the issues that comes up is some of us have a wee tendency to be a little codependent. Just a titch. Well, that's why, really the shaman, that that's yeah. why the shaman was very effective as a healer, because he believed, he listened. He didn't have any medicine, but he came in, and he had the reputation of healing, and he had the reputation of, hear, of listening, and the people believed in him, or her. I don't want to be that there was sexist shaming. But, but they, he, they also had potent hallucinogenic drugs yeah, right. uh, to make them forget they were codependent. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. But the issue really is our desire to be liked, our desire to help, is is powerful and it drives us in, in certain uh, cases to not do necessarily the best thing for the patient so you know sort of paying attention to your insides and what it is that you yearn to do which is have the patient say thank you doctor and leave <laughs> uh, and and really allow them to be dissatisfied with the end result but to know that you are providing them with consistency and compassion because compassion is different than codependence Compassion is, I really care about you, and in my heart of hearts, this is what I think is best, and this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, they may not ever come back, but they may come back and say, you know, you're the first doctor who ever did that, and stuck with it. We're, thank you. We're, we're 10 minutes over. Oh, I want I to say we, thank you very much for coming to the first meeting. I thought we went to 440. We yeah, go to 440? We do. That's why you rushed me through my talk, and now <laughs> sit down. I'll go sit down, too, but... So, seriously, have you got uh, either yeah, cases that uh, might be interesting to you? Thank you very much for your help there. None of us have a schedule up here, so that's where we're handicapped. Um, Go ahead. So I had a question. So where would you start? I'm in a system where we have access to records through computers, and I can look and get a history, a pretty good one, of years and years of treatment. So a patient is referred to us through primary care with an MED of, say, 400, um, with significant history of substance use disorder, in and out of treatments, in and out of methadone programs. Of course, then they see the primary care, the doses are escalated for the chronic pain, and then they're transferred to us for care. And of course, the patient insists I have no substance use disorder, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, those I find so challenging because 
there's a documentation, but yet how do you start to work with those patients to get from there to there? Well, you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the first thing you have to do is determine what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And to a certain extent, when a new patient comes your way and they're being inherited and they're on medications, uh, it, it's a little bit like taking a, a call on call where the patient is asking you to do something with, at that point in time, not enough information, but you have to get as much information as necessary to do what you're gonna do safely. And that patient is either gonna come in essentially on medications that you have no particular difficulty with, they may appear to be quite stable, um, and, and it might even be something that you yourself would have recommended. You might not want to give them an extended period of time with that medication because you have to respect the fact that this is a new patient in your life. Well, well, and, and, and that, that's true, and, and so you're kind of in a capitated bubble. But some of those patients are going to come to you, and they're going to be doing things that are not acceptable to you. And they're not acceptable to you for a variety of reasons. Uh, the example I always use, although it's less timely now, is a patient in renal failure on Demerol. And if they come to you on Demerol and say, I want Demerol, and you give it to them, and they have a seizure, on your prescription, uh, knowing that they had renal failure or renal insufficiency made it completely inappropriate to do that. So you have to educate when the patient says, but my other doctor did it, mm -hmm. say, well, you know what? That I can't control for. All I can do today is help you understand why I can't do it. And then as time goes on, recognize that a substance use disorder is often diagnosed prospectively over time, meaning an individual who's given reasonably set limits and boundaries, who stays within them, is essentially defining themselves as not having a substance use disorder. They may have a number of other things going on against them, but people who keep stepping out of bounds, no matter how reasonable those bounds are, are not just straining uh, credulity, they're straining the diagnosis mm -hmm. that this is primarily inadequately treated pain. And so I, th I think, you know, unfortunately in the addictions world, sometimes our diagnosis is provisional with a tincture of time, we'll often tell. And, the, and that time with boundaries and limits, that young lady that was a, a lab tech walked away very satisfied because she got more per diem than she'd ever gotten before until she realized she only got one week's worth. And so she was far into the anticipation of the problems she was going to get. I'd mentioned to her and reminded her of her seizure, and that coupled together with the, with the acknowledgement that things weren't going well caused her to pick up the phone, and we now know an enormous amount more about that lady than we did before. So every time there's a change, change in practitioner, change in medication, whatever, there's an opportunity. And I think one of the challenges when you're the only thing that appears to have changed is that the patient is often going to look at you and say, I want status quo. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it'll be okay to say that, but, but with a caveat that says, you know, I don't really think this is going to work in the long run. I'll stick with you with, with you know, controls and limits, but 
if it falls apart, as I think it might, we're going to then have to address it. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. One of the things that I can do with somebody in a longitudinal fashion is say, okay, you know, for I do a lot of detox, so, you know, I can't not get a dose of, of methadone or, or of buprenorphine or of uh, tramadol. You know, I can't, I can't go over to the other side because when they're done with detox, they go to rehab. And they're petrified. And, and, I, and I negotiate, you know. Okay, let's, let's keep this dose for 24 hours. And in your case, it might be for a week or two or three or four. But mm -hmm. that's not going to continue, you know. So they're on notice. They have some time to reflect. They have some time to prepare, because oftentimes I think we get into trouble with sort of an arbitrary, no, I'm not doing this. And then it's a conflict because right there and then without any preparation, they've now, you know, they're now really not getting what they want and feel like they need. But I think, you know, giving those preparatory statements and really letting somebody know and then sticking with the limits. I do a lot of chart reviews for hospitals, systems. And oftentimes, the doc does exactly the right thing. We have to wean you off your drugs because you're on too high an MED. And they, they prescribe 90 instead of 120. And the patient comes back, and the next note in the chart, it's an electronic medical record. So, you know, you thumb through 12 pages, and you get to the meat of the note is they're on 120 again with no explanation and no attempt. And three months later, somebody says, no, they're still on too high a dose. And, you know you got to be consistent and stick with it or at least describe what it is that you're doing and why. And if it's bad care, then you just simply don't do it. You know, if it's Demerol for somebody in renal failure, Ta it's not an option. Tap know? Tapers are fraught with yeah. challenges, yeah, yeah. and it is not at all uncommon uh, where patients are on mm -hmm. tapers with their primary care doc. They're given three months of medication and a, and a taper script, uh, and at the end, when you're getting ready to shake their hand and say, well done, true and noble friend, you find out not only are they not off, but in many cases, they're on more than they were when they started with you. Yeah. And it can be very, well, how the heck could that have happened? And it happens because when you perturb the system, the majority of patients are going to struggle. And part of the way you can address that struggle is biobehaviorally. Mm -hmm. You can invite them to come to a group, for example, if you had, as an outpatient, to work with a support group, get a sponsor, things like that. Or you can simply have them go to the pharmacy every week. It's much harder to borrow from tomorrow to pay for today, <coughs> excuse me, when you've got a small bottle of pills than it is when you've got a big bottle of pills. And so keeping these things in mind is important to success. The other thing is, Many times our colleagues will think, as long as you go slowly enough, you can eliminate withdrawal under all circumstances. And there's a fine line between going slowly enough to allow neuroadaptation versus so slow you're prolonging the misery. Yeah. And, some, and I think Mel would probably agree that in some cases you do the best you can, but then at the end you remind them the goal is to get through this and not spend any more time lingering on, on this inadequate dose because the, going from here to here is often much, much easier than going from here to here. Yeah, we, we rip the Band-Aid off. We use a lot of adjunctive medications like clonidine and uh, some sort of uh, sedating medicine and something for sleep and something for cramps, you know, dicyclamine or something like that. 
and it, it just gets done. Now, I'll tell you, the exceptions to the rule are methadone and buprenorphine. Those withdrawals go on even with discontinuing the drug for a, an incredibly long time, sometimes weeks and weeks and weeks uh, to the consternation of our treatment team and benzodiazepines, absolutely. And, and the combination, because we often have people who are on methadone and Xanax or, or uh, buprenorphine and, and, uh, and, and lorazepam uh, is, is really intractable. And but it's tough to do as an outcome. If you have 100 people line up, 100 on both sides, and 100 have um, an opioid um, dependency or abuse, and 100 have a benzo um, problem, and you say, I could only detox you from one of the drugs, and the other ones you got to do yourself, I would think that over 90% will say, help me with the benzo, the opioid, I'll do Benzos are very, very difficult. One, one of the challenges you face when you're in a taper at each occurrence is whether you hold, whether you fold and, and go lower, or whether you go up. And I'll, I'll give you a, a case of a, a patient that wasn't my patient, but was on morphine and an extraordinarily large amount of alprazolam, 24 milligrams a day. I mean, yes, yeah. I, I, I know, I so, know, but in real deal? life, most people quiver. <laughs> and and uh, he was, she was on uh, morphine. Her doctor was going to put her on to methadone, substitute, and then deal with methadone <laughs> as a taper or stabilize, whatever. And we were, the doctor, the prescriber was concerned that she couldn't possibly deal with a 24 milligram per day Xanax uh, habit. And yet she said, I want to work with my family doctor and, and let me see what I can do. She came back a month later and she was on 0.25 of Xanax. And, and she, that was really quite impressive, <coughs> a, a real commitment. But she said to her doctor, you know, it really wasn't that difficult. So he said, well, I'm, I'm glad. Let's, it's Monday, we'll start the methadone, and then we'll talk to you on Thursday and, and see whether we need to go up or down or hold, whatever. And she said, but Dr. Uh, Gordon, you were worried about my Xanax. I'm wondering if since I'm on such a little whiff, can I just stop it? And he said, yes, mm. just stop it. I'd be much happier with you not being on benzos. So she started on Monday, she got 30 milligrams, um, 10 TID. On Tuesday, she was feeling a little bit rough. They went to 20 milligrams TID. Long and the short of it was, I saw her on Thursday, and she was on 80 milligrams in a relatively short period of time, continuing to be in withdrawal. And I saw her at the end of the day, and I have a train ride, an hour and a half train ride, and it's 4 o'clock, and I'm going to miss my damn train, and I'm not a happy camper. And she came in and she was just vibrating. And I asked her a couple of questions and a smile came across my face. And she said, why are you smiling? <laughs> I said, because you're going to feel great and I'm going to make my train. And that's a good thing. And you know what it was? She was in benzo withdrawal. But the hook that we almost killed her with, yeah. not me, but our center nearly killed her with, was the concurrent sedative effects of the opioids and the mistake of the withdrawal, which if you know what withdrawal from opioids versus benzo withdrawal, they're so characteristically different that, that you really just ask a few questions and you know what you're, you're involved with. 
The problem with that is if you think it's withdrawal through an opiate debt and you add an opioid and it seems to get better, it can lull you into, the fit, into a false sense of security that you're doing the right thing. She would undoubtedly have been dead mm -hmm. if I hadn't seen her on Thursday. Mm -hmm. We backed off her methadone to a sublethal level and I put her on clonopin, .5 milligrams, take up to three times a day, and, and she leveled up perfectly. The reason I tell you this story is twofold. One is it can be very, very difficult to go from here to here where here is off, but it invariably requires a relatively trivial amount of drug compared to a therapeutic equivalence to offset withdrawal. And beware, all withdrawal is not the same. Benzo withdrawal will temporize alcohol and their sedatives, and that makes fairly good sense, and we do that quite often as an outpatient, uh, an inpatient detox with, uh, with a Valium load. But opiate withdrawal is primarily sympathomimetic, mm -hmm. and we forget that opioids are actually sympatholytic agents, and withdrawal is always the opposite of what the primary therapeutic effect is. So if you have cocaine as a stimulant, you're going to get a profound uh, anhedonia and a crash. If you take a sedative like a benzodiazepine, you're going to get hyperactivation and the potential of seizures. With opioids, you get tachycardia, diaphoresis, pupillary uh, um, pinpoints, and this is all characteristic that you should know. You should also know the time frame. Morphine withdrawal is typically worse on day three and over in seven to ten days. Methadone quite differently. So if a patient comes into you on day four and says, I'm just not coping, I need, I need a, to be bailed out, your choice is to give them more of the opioid perhaps and drop back or to say, you know what, you've been through day three. Have you noticed that day four is actually not as bad as it was yesterday? I can tell you it's probably all going to be over by seven to ten days. That information can help a lot of people cope. But if it's on day three and it's methadone and the patient says, I, I'm not sure I'm going to cope, I feel like I'll use, and you say, no, you're through the worst of it, you're either ignorant or you're lying. Yeah. And, and you need to keep that in mind. And they'll be back the next day to tell you which. <laughs> or, or the coroner will call. Yeah. Uh, just two things I wanted to add. Uh, one is that... We uh, use a naltrexone challenge for opiates at the very end of the withdrawal. It's a very low dose of naltrexone, so it's an opiate blocker, and it precipitates the end of withdrawal for a drug like methadone or buprenorphine. It's not uh, FDA approved for that. It's a little tricky. You may not want to do it as an outpatient because if there's some ben ben I mean, uh, opiate left, they're going to have precipitated withdrawal. But if you start with five milligrams, of naltrexone, whereas a, a tablet is 50 milligrams, it'll be a graded amount of withdrawal. As you increase by five milligram increments, usually the withdrawal will become more precipitous, and at some point the patient in our center will say, no, no, no more, or let's get to the end of this. And by the next day, all those protracted symptoms have really subsided because the now, receptors with, cleaned out. With buprenorphine, yeah. I, I certainly would agree with you on a full agonist like mm -hmm. methadone or, or otherwise. But our experience with converting buprenorphine patients onto naltrexone has been one not of precipitated withdrawal, but rather graduated uh, competitive um, yeah. effects. One, one of the things about buprenorphine that's quite elegant is it has such high receptor affinity mm -hmm. 
that once the receptor, the, the mu receptor binds with buprenorphine, it's essentially going to stay there until the molecule and the receptor internalize, they break apart, and the receptor is regenerated. That's quite different than fentanyl, hydromorphone, lots of other methadone even, where the molecule is coming on and, and coming on and going off, coming on and going off. So if you introduce naltrexone into that recipe, as the as the morphine comes off or the other full agonist comes off, the naltrexone will gradually start to compete and and fill these receptors. But with buprenorphine, it doesn't really quite work that way. So I'm. Do you see much withdrawal? We wait. At the end? We wait about five to seven days after the last dose of buprenorphine before we do it. It's in people who have that protracted, intractable symptomatology. Be because after five, three to five days with buprenorphine, mm -hmm. what you will get is an upregulation mm -hmm. of mu receptors. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if what you're seeing. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. If you stop a person on, on buprenorphine, uh, and then a couple of three days later you give them a dose of of morphine, mm -hmm. you could actually get a very diaphoretic uh, right. uh, hyperemesis, the whole classic picture of opiate withdrawal, but it's not opiate withdrawal, it's actually uh, hyper um, excess opioid syndrome because the patient's actually hypersensitive. You can always give a full mu agonist to a buprenorphine or partial agonist patient with impunity. That's the reverse key. will not hold true. Right. And withdrawal is always a rate of change phenomenon. It's not level based. It's how quickly do you go from here to here or here to here. If here to here is 400 to 200 over 24 hours, that's a half-life of 24 hours. Most people tolerate that beautifully with methadone. But if you went from here to here, where here is 400 and this is 325 or 350 because of a Narcan injection, all hell will break loose. Mm. And, and so it, it's important when you're converting, I think, um, you, can, you can use tricks. Now, would you keep that person on naltrexone for a while? Yes. As protective? Yes. yes. And, or use Vivitrol, the injectable form. Yeah, and, and move the, are you all familiar with Vivitrol? As injectable a, naltrexone. A, a depot antagonist that lasts for about a month. Yeah. The, Peter Coleman is the guy from, uh, he's the East Coast, I think you're neck of the woods, mm. who, who's done it a ton of these. He, he loves naltrexone, so that's where I learned it. The other thing I wanted to mention was anticonvulsants for benzo withdrawal are quite helpful. So either uh, carbamazepine, Tegretol, or sometimes gabapentin, or um, oxcarbazepine, which is... Have you treated any uh, gabapentinoid abuse? You know, not exactly. Well, no, I, I did have one case of a woman who was taking 80 600 milligram gabapentin. I guess you could say that's gabapentin abuse. Uh, seriously, that was her dose. And uh, she had quite a bit of withdrawal symptoms. But not a lot. You know, it's people, clearly it's a sedating uh, medication. I don't love using it. But we do use it on occasion for neuropathic pain or for central pain. Let me ask my two colleagues a question. You have, you know, with a suboxone, with or without the naloxone, do you think it makes a difference? <laughs> Physiologically? In case you haven't noticed the hornet's nest that has formed here, <laughs> it, it's, uh, this is the conundrum. Was Subutex, which is the monoproduct, right. replaced by Suboxone, which is the four-to-one binary or, or um, uh, combination product of naltrexone antagonist? No, with naloxone. 
Yeah, naloxone. Yeah. It's naloxone, sorry. Yeah. And is this, in fact, um, somehow worthy of a special place, either in risk management by a lower schedule or has a lower abuse liability? Or does it make a difference to have it? Uh, if I went through it, if I'm opiate naive, right. and you give me right. buprenorphine, it will behave like a relatively potent mu agonist. Stick to it like super glue. It will, and, and I will get high as a kite. Um, I may become diaphoretic and nauseated from the excess of mu agonism. But if I'm opioid naive, it will behave as a full opioid. If I give a naltrexone containing, or a naloxone containing, sorry, yeah. yeah. If I give a naloxone containing binary effect, the affinity of the buprenorphine is so much higher than the naloxone, and naloxone has nothing to compete with because I'm an, a mu-dependent. In the half-life. Well, no, but I, I'm a mu individual with no experience. I'm mu-naive. It'll behave primarily like a mu-agonist. So the flip side is that what if I'm an, a mu-dependent individual and you give me a big whack of buprenorphine, it has a high probability of precipitating withdrawal. If you give me the Narcan version of it, it also will precipitate withdrawal. Not necessarily more withdrawal, but it gives regulators a warm, fuzzy feeling. And I think that's probably why Mel's uh, smiling here, because it's kind of a distinction without a difference. The fact is, if you're an opiate dependent and not an inactive withdrawal, and you give buprenorphine, it'll reverse it. And if you give suboxone, it'll reverse it. Yes. So uh, it, it was more of a regulatory fiddle to try to secure a lower um, scheduling. And in France and in other jurisdictions, the, the combination products are abused. We had a product called Tolwin. Any of you remember Tolwin? Yeah. Tolwin was, was mixed with a compound called pyrobenzamine for something called T's and D's. And it was an alternative to heroin in the 70s. And in order to prevent the injection of, of Tolwin, your country added Narcan to the Tolwin, and it became known as Tolwin NX. Canada never did that. And as a result, cross-border shopping for our real Tolwin was very, very profitable. Yeah. However, Sid Schnall and a couple of other people, uh, after about six months, started reporting patients coming to the ER who were injecting Tolwin NX. And, and what it really says is people don't abuse drugs according to Goodman and Gilman. They abuse drugs in very complicated ways and they abuse them based on availability and a number of other things. So the bottom line is, uh, Dr. Haidt, I would uh, not feel a whole lot of safety in the Narcan-containing product right. compared right. to the Monoprod. I also think that it was, it, it, I, I think, I mean, if I talk about it physiologically, I don't know what role it does play, if I, but it said, it said that in, where there was a lot of abuse in New Zealand and Austria, Australia, is that it, it the high. Yeah. That's the, the, that was the reason. The only thing I'll say is that the Narcan, the naloxone, is only active if you adulterate the tablet. So it's really to prevent injecting. And what I've understood is that if the dose of Narcan, because it's so low... No, it's actually quite high. It's four to one. Four, four milligrams Narcan. to one milligram. So eight milligrams of Narcan in a two milligram tablet. And if you look at well, the I'm urine... No, if you, if you look at the urine 
of a of a suboxone patient. Yeah. This is one of the controversies because if you're pregnant, the the general wisdom says never expose the mum and fetus to a drug that has no purpose. And the only purpose with Narcan is to be an anti-tampering or an anti-adulterating substance. So uh, eventually over time, Subutex yes. became relatively difficult to obtain and the decision was made that on balance, Suboxone was a safe drug to use in pregnancy. But when you look in the urine of women who are on Suboxone, they have, they have naloxone in their urine, which implies that not a lot, but some is absorbed sublingually. And we know in a Narcan rescue, yeah. you can inject it intramuscularly, you can do it intravenously, you can tr do it transnasally, you can do it transtracheally. It has a very hmm. uh, efficient absorption. So if you look at the urine of people on Suboxone, you will find naloxone. And when I asked uh, uh, in, in uh, London at a buprenorphine meeting, they got quite embarrassed on that because you really can't weasel your way around this. Mm. The drug was primarily added to give regulators a warm fuzzy yeah. feeling. That's the main so reason. I think you, they all get the prize, right? For staying you, you know what? for three yeah. hours. I mean, what's we, we wrong with you? We people? didn't say this, but you actually get a prize, <laughs> and that is the doors unlocked. You get to leave. Yeah, the doors unlock spontaneously. Thank Thanks you very much for coming. And if you have any feedback about what you'd like to see next year, uh, perhaps including people with voices, uh, we'll try to accommodate. And I just want to thank Mel and Howard for um, sticking it out. And uh, I haven't seen Mel in a long time. It's a pleasure working with you.